Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. All right, attention homeowners. By now you know that, man, this coronavirus has affected everything, not just our daily lives, but our investments as well. The stock market has been all over the place. We just had one of the worst weeks in history. And as a result, interest rates have gone a little nuts. Both last week and the week before, we had several hours where we had the best rates we've ever had in the entire time I've done this, which goes back to 2001. But then very quickly, those rates would move. It's a very fluid situation. So I'm urging you, if you're in a 30-year loan or you have credit card debt, you need to go ahead and get your application in. We can help you figure out which loan program maybe makes sense for you, help you accomplish what those goals might be. But we won't lock your loan until we hit the rate you've been waiting for. But what we don't want to do is wait until the rates hit, then you start the application process, and by the time we're able to lock it, the rates have already moved. It's like the old cliche, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Make a plan to succeed. Start your application right now at applywithconrad.com. Notice I didn't say go to savewithconrad.com, and don't get me wrong, if you just want to do a quick quote and want to take a look under the hood, by all means, go to savewithconrad.com. But if you're serious about doing this, go to applywithconrad.com right now. Do your complete application. We'll help you identify which loan product is going to help you reach your goals. And when the rates get where you're happy, we will click the lock button. The rates are very, very fluid. Now, something I haven't talked about a lot, I do want to mention, I get you a seven-year guarantee where if your needs change in the next seven years, for whatever reason, and I don't just mean the interest rates move up or down, I mean, maybe your circumstance changes. Maybe you're going to have a new addition to the family and you need to add on to your house. Maybe you need to consolidate some debt. Maybe you unfortunately go through a divorce, you need to cash out the wife, or maybe you need to buy another house. Whatever the situation is, for the next seven years, I'm going to get you a guarantee where you're not going to have new lender fees from me. Your biggest piece of your closing cost is origination, and we get rid of that 1% origination with our seven-year guarantee. But what this really does is provide you with peace of mind that you've got the best deal possible right now without having to waste money later on a second set of closing costs. But when you can save as much money as I know you can right now, it makes sense to start the application process. Applywithconrad.com. We'll run the numbers right now, and if we have a specific rate we're looking for, we'll be ready to click the button when we get there. But you need to act fast. It's a very, very fluid situation. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and you get to skip your next two house payments. And right now, that could probably help a lot of folks out. Get rid of your credit card debt, lower your monthly payments, skip a couple of payments. We're going to make it fast. We're going to make it easy. And it all starts with a full application at applywithconrad.com right now.
Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Just uh, adjusting to uh, life under the uh, coronavirus mandate and everybody kind of shutting down and closing up. But, you know, things are good. I, I, I feel bad because, you know, it's just not affecting us that much, but we don't live in a big city. We don't have kids. We, you know, we're not challenged with a lot of things that people are challenged with. And I, I fully recognize that. But for Mrs. B and I, and, and now Montana, who's here with us in uh, Wyoming, it's uh, more or less life as usual. So just hoping everybody's safe and, and adjusting and adapting to this uh, bizarre time. Yeah, it's a weird time, man. You know, we saw record unemployment reports last week and what a massive effect this virus has had, not just on the sick, but uh, everyone. And uh, we hope that our podcast today is a one constant you can count on. It feels like everything else is being changed or eliminated or canceled or uh, put on hold or postponed, but not 83 weeks. We are recording from the comfort of our home, uh, me in Alabama, and of course, Eric in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. So, Let's, uh, let's jump into it, man. Our most requested topic. I think, I don't think there was a better storyline in WCW history than sting versus the NWO. And of course, 1997 is when that really gets to a fever pitch. This is probably my favorite year in wrestling. And I would guess probably yours as well. I think so. I think if I had to pick one, I mean, it's, this is always hard, you know, it's like, it's just hard because there were so many great moments, you know, during this time and it, 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 it's really challenging, but I think for an extended period of time, meaning, you know, one year, uh, as an, as an example, um, it would be hard to pick another year that was more important, more positive, and I think had more of an influence on the entire industry as we still see today um, than 1997. So it it really was fun. It was it, it was a great time, and then and, and it'll be fun looking back. Well, let's jump into it. Uh, coming off of uh, 1996, we've got well a lot of moving parts. We've covered it in great detail, but the Fall Brawl pay per view in September of 96 was supposed to be. WCW versus the NWO. And it looked like sting was a traitor based on the week before's nitro. And of course we would find out the truth that there was in fact a fake sting that would reveal himself at fall brawl. And the next day sting comes out, cuts a promo saying that you can stick it cause you didn't believe in him. And then he started to sit in the rafters. Crow sting was born and that's what we, uh, sort of set the pace for, for 1997. I got to ask, you know, in the, the overall arc, you know, that next week when we see Sting in the black and white, you know, crow style sitting in the rafters of the arena, did you know, Hey, I'm going to ride this out until next Starcade. I know that may sound a little silly, but we've often heard that, you know, Vince, Bruce and Pat would sit around and book WrestleMania to WrestleMania. So they would start with the end in mind and you've talked a lot about storytelling and, and, and the three act story structure and things like that here on the show. Did you know, Hey, I'm going to stretch this out for 14, 15, 16 months. No, no. And you know, it's interesting when I first 
came to WCW as an announcer. And there were, you know, a number of people there that had worked in, in WWF. And I would always hear, especially when Gene Okerlund came in, because Gene and I would spend a lot of time just, you know, Gene was from Minnesota and, and you know, worked for years for Vern Gagne. And we, we just had, Gene and I had a lot of things in common. And Gene was always, you know, he's fully supportive of WCW. He wanted us to succeed in every way. Um, he would often offer tips and examples and anecdotes about how WWF would do things versus how we were doing them in WCW. And, and I had heard many of these same kind of comments or, 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 or points of view from you know, talent that had also worked in, in WWF, again, when I first got there to WCW. And one of the things that I heard consistently was how WWF would book WrestleMania to WrestleMania or six months out and work backwards. And it was always, it made sense to me. I mean, on any journey, no matter what you're doing or what your business is, if you don't know what your goal is, if you don't know where you're going, you know, you don't drive to the airport and say, I think I'm going to get on a plane and see where it's going. You know, you've got to have a destination and you work backwards from that destination. So it made perfectly good sense to me. But in early WCW, that just wasn't the booking logic. You know, so much of the influence on the creative side or the booking side, as we used to call it, came from people who, for the most part, came up in weekly territories, including Dusty Rhodes, who, you know, we don't talk about Dusty much. You know, we all hold Dusty in high regard and and. He was a he was a great friend of mine, and and I learned so much from Dusty, and I and I think Dusty was one of the most creative people that I've ever worked with. However, <laughs> yeah, it, just because one is creative doesn't necessarily mean that that same creative instinct follows a logical kind of trajectory. And I think if there was a flaw in Dusty's approach to booking, at least in early WCW and, you know, when I got there in 91 or whatever it was until 94, um, was the lack of kind of logic and consistency. The ideas were big and they were great ideas and they were, they were epic in scope as Dusty would lay them out on paper or explain them. You know, sometimes I would just sit in Dusty's office for an hour or two and, and listen to him, you know, talk about his vision uh, and, and his his overall ideas. And they were phenomenal. But, I, you know, and I didn't realize it then, realize it then because I didn't have the experience or the, the understanding of creative, you know, back in the early 90s. But as guys like Gene and, and others who had worked in WWF, I, I spent more and more time talking to them about, you know, how the WWF was so successful and, and why their stories made so much more sense than ours. It began to become clear to me that you, you not only have to have a great idea and a great vision, but in order for it to work, there has to be a plan. There, you know, we, I, I, I'll often re refer to it as an arc. You know, it's a, a, a term typically used in the storytelling kind of vernacular, but it's just a plan. It's, you know, how does it start and how does it end and what happens in between? And ideally, you know, each beat along the way 
progresses in a way that captures the audience's imagination. And we didn't have that in WCW. I, I aspired to it. So as, as you know, you fast forward a couple years from when I would sit and listen to Dusty and, and others, not just Dusty, but others, uh, but primarily Dusty, and, and see him attempt some pretty big ideas. But it became clear to me after a couple of years that one of the flaws in, in Dusty's approach and one of the reasons I think a lot of Dusty's ideas didn't really um, hit as, as well as they could have is because of the lack of planning and kind of storytelling structure. That's what kind of took me into 96 when I started feeling more comfortable involving myself in the creative process because it began to crystallize in my own mind. Again, just from watching, not from having any experience or, you know, taking a class or reading a book or any of that kind of stuff. Just what it's trial and error watching things being thrown up against the wall and, and asking myself and analyzing why did this work and why did this why didn't this work so that by the time 97 came along now i've got a year under my belt of being much more involved in creative certainly the nwo <clears throat> idea was an idea that i for the most part shaped and, and and managed with a lot of input from a lot of other people don't get me wrong i'm not taking 100% credit for it but the arc, the structure, the storytelling, who's the third man, the mystery, the surprises, you know, uh, the, the, the position that we put heel or baby faces in, um, all of that was new and fresh. And it was a result of what I had learned over the previous three or four years, uh, you know, watching from the sidelines, the creative process. Now, all that being said, you know, when the Sting character, when we got excited about the Sting character, and, you know, maybe we'll cover that later on in the show, but when I got excited about the Sting character, we all got excited about it. Um, we had no idea, much like we had no idea how strong the NWO was going to become as an idea. I, I always say this, I would like to pat myself on the back and, you know, convinced the world what a genius I was and how I saw this coming and I knew that the Sting Crow character was going to be a huge success and planned accordingly, that would be bullshit because I didn't. None of us did. And it wasn't until really we saw the momentum, a little bit like Bill Goldberg, you know. Nobody had an idea that Bill Goldberg, when he first came out for his first couple dark matches, was going to turn into the phenomenal talent that he became or character that he became. Um, and this was the same situation. It wasn't until watching the, the audience's reaction and kind of reaffirming the, the, the concept and validating the actual concept of Sting and this Crow character that we started talking about, okay, we've got to, this is not just a short-term angle. We've got to figure out a way to make this work. And I would say it, it was probably three or four months into it, maybe, maybe less, probably two or three months into the, you know, the debut of the Crow character that we began to realize that we had lightning in a bottle and we better be smart. And instead of popping the cork and blowing it all at once, we needed to um, be careful and ration that character and its story over a longer period of time because we knew we could make it stronger. 
So long story short, short, you know, long answer short. No, we didn't know. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of months afterwards that we really began to see it. And again, it was because of the audience reaction. It wasn't because, you know, anybody had a crystal ball and was so fucking talented and was such a creative genius. None of that was true. It was, wow, this is a great idea. Holy shit. It's working better than we thought. Let's be smart. That's really what it was. All right, Eric, let's run a timeout right now and tell everybody something you've known for a long time. The best meat in the world comes from corn country, baby. We're talking Midwest family farmers making some of the most succulent pork you've ever tasted with the new certified Duroc heritage pork, all from our friends. And are you ready for this fairwaymeatmarket.com? That's right. The same fairway that is a top 10 employer in Iowa. They've been around since 1938. They're a staple that I had no idea about Eric. You were holding out on me. They really do have the best meat in the world. They've got every cut that your kitchen can handle. We're talking ribs to ribeyes, pork chops, beef tenderloin. They've got it all. And here's how it works. It's one, two, three. Well, number one, go to fairwaymeatmarket.com. And by the way, fairway is F A R E W A Y meatmarket.com. Number two, select your favorite meat products. And number three, get by your green egg and wait patiently. Eric, we love our big green egg. We're right here. The warmer weather has got us all outside. We're still self-isolating, but by God, we're grilling and eating the best meat in the world. Are we not? I am grilling my ass off. You know, when Lori and I got back to Wyoming here a couple weeks ago, and it felt good to get back in the house and all that, get back into the the town that I love. But I, I didn't quite feel at home until about three nights ago. Got the big green egg, got it out of the garage, threw it, cleaned it up a little bit, threw in some fresh charcoal, some wood, and some Duroc pork chops. And I'm telling you, now I feel at home. Everything is right with the world. Fairway meat, big green egg, Cody, Wyoming. I know I said it at the beginning of the show, I feel bad for the rest of the people around the country, but you put me in Cody, Wyoming with a big green egg and some Duroc pork chops from Fairway Meats, I'm the happiest camper on the planet. And now you can be the happiest camper. All you got to do is go pick up the Heartline package. And this is valued at more than 230 bucks, but you can get it for just $99 with free shipping when you Whoa, use our promo code. that's a deal. Absolutely. The shipping on meat and stuff like this is very expensive. They're going to give it to you for free, 230 bucks worth of meat for just 99 bucks. But you've got to use our special promo code. It's 83, just the number eight and the number three. Now here's what the Heartland package includes. Eight, eight ounce, all natural Duroc boneless pork chops, six, eight ounce USDA choice ribeye steaks, and a side dish of your choice. You can get brisket, brisket, baked beans, gourmet, cheesy corn, a loaded potato bake. We're talking more than 50% off the best meat in America with free shipping. That's fairwaymeatmarket.com. Look for the heartland package and use our promo code 83 and you'll get it for just 99 bucks with free shipping. That's fairwaymeatmarket.com. Look for the Heartland package and use our promo code 83. Hey, well, before you go, a little bit of a pro tip on this. Now, this is such high quality meat. Trust me, I know my meat. (laughs) But this meat is so good. If you're going to order, when you order, not if you're going to order, when you order, because you should. It's an unbelievable bargain and it's a great product. But take a few minutes and Google reverse searing regardless of whether you have a big green egg or a regular grill or you cook in your home google reverse searing 
because with high quality meat like this, you want to cook it to perfection. It's not that difficult. It's really easy. Your friends and family will think that you should have your own show on the Food Network. Life will be awesome. Check it out. Fairwaymeatmarket.com, Heartland Package, and the promo code is 83. It's just fascinating to me because you feel like um, eventually you're going to see wrestling become more, um, I don't know, frantic short term. Uh, I think there's a term in wrestling, uh, shotgun booking. It feels like you would have taken this guy, put him in the ceiling. Oh, he doesn't know whose side he's on. Let's put him in a pay-per-view main event against Lex Luger the next month. And you had the, maybe, maybe you had the patience, but maybe it was just good luck and, and you had other plans for a month or two. So, Hey, we'll just stick him up here and we'll come back in two, in three months. But along the way, you see how it's catching on and you think, well, let's, let's see how long we can stretch this out. Well, it, it, yes and no. Uh, you know, and I, I've always heard the term, you know, hotshot booking and shotgun booking. It's all the same thing. Um, keep in mind though, in 1997, we weren't desperate. You know, we were on a roll like no one had ever experienced, not in WWF, certainly not in WCW, nor anywhere else on the planet. And we had a very deep roster, and, and we knew by 1997, the NWO was going to be the anchor creative for an indefinite period of time. And we had, a, you know, again, such a great roster, and the, the ability to not be forced into or be tempted probably more than anything it is being tempted to hot shot and try to, uh, you know, score a big pay-per-view or score a couple big ratings. It was like, no, man, we, we've got enough gas in our tank now, you know, to go a long way. Let's not put the pedal to the metal and, you know, go through a full tank of gas in six months when we know we can stretch this thing out and, and make it last over a longer period of time. And it was, it was, you know, after that two or three month period that it, it occurred to me finally after years of hearing about how WC or WWF had long-term planning, long-term booking and booking from year to year, I aspired to that. I really did. I really wanted to achieve that. That was part of my motivation, I guess, or, or, or inspiration for the NWO angle. It was also um, obvious to me after two or three months that Sting was that opportunity. NWO was strong. We knew that we had a lot of rope still in 1997. There was a lot of things that we could do. We didn't feel the need to rush it or change it or force it. It was on its own role. It had a life of its own. It became a living thing by that point. So that Sting was that opportunity that I coveted for so long in hearing about how WWF did it right. Then it became crystal clear to me that Sting is that opportunity. And, you know, I, I know I talk about, you know, three X structure and arcs and things like that, because it's, it's what I think is lacking in today's product in WWE in AEW for the most part, you can skip a week and pick it back up and not feel like you missed a thing. And I, I think storytelling as great as the athleticism is in AEW and it is, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. I think the interviews, the promos, so much of what I see in AEW, um, I really like. 
And and the same is true with WWE. It's a little different product. I, I don't get as excited about the promos as, as I do in AEW because I'm just they are what they are. But the physicality, a lot of the characters, obviously the production values. There's so many things I like about WWE. But you know, of the two products right now, I think they're both seriously lacking in the kind of story that I like. And it's just me, you know, and I want to be clear about that. When people listen to this, ah, oh, Bischoff's burying AEW. We're burying their creative bullshit. Get that rusty crowbar. You know what to do with it. it, it it's not it. it. It's just me, this singular individual who's at the stage of life that I am, who grew up watching wrestling and being impressed with it and it capturing my imagination because of certain things, I'll always go back to great story and great characters. Even though I appreciate the athleticism and I appreciate many of the other things that come with today's product. And and I'm grateful and I fully encourage people to support the type of wrestling that they like. For me personally, What's lacking is great storytelling. It's just not there to the the degree that I enjoy it. And arcs, three-act structures are are part of that, certainly. They're the foundation of that. But there are are other elements as well in, in formatting a television show. You know, one of the things that I learned after I got out of wrestling, really, um, and and Jason Hervey and I were producing a lot of uh, unscripted shows. We would develop the ideas from scratch. We would find the right talent, generally celebrity talent, but oftentimes not. Um, We would develop these ideas and we would pitch them to networks. And through that process over a couple of years, I learned a lot, even in unscripted television, because when you watch unscripted television, like Tiger King is one that's hot right now on Netflix. Um, And, and I'm, you know, I'm in just, immersed in that. It was like fucking mind boggling, by the way. But there's a structure to it. There's a a an A story and a B story and a C story. And I used to drive that home, you know, as hard as I could, even when I was in TNA. And usually the people in the room, with with the exception of, you know, Matt Conway and a couple others, would look at me like I was speaking Greek. You know, what the fuck is that? You know? A story, B story, but when you when you really understand the significance of a storytelling in general, the timing of those stories, because you don't want, you know if you've got a two hour show, for example, and um, say you've got twelve segments on the show or ten segments on the show that's filled with talent, yeah, you got 20, 20 pieces of talent or more, depending on the type of matches that you set up that are presenting their stories. Well, you don't want all of those stories to peak at the same time. Otherwise you're starting completely over from scratch after, you know, your next pay-per-view. So for me, ideally you had your, my number one, my A story that was driving. And I used to assign percentages actually, you know, I sit down and say, okay, we've got, you know, 84 minutes or whatever, whatever it was of actual program content. I'm going to dedicate, and I'm picking these numbers off the top of my head because I don't remember them right now. I have to go back and look at some of my notes. But, for example, on a two-hour show, if there's – and, again, picking a number straight off the top of my head. Take out the commercial breaks. I've got 84 minutes of content. Okay, I'm going to dedicate 40% of that content to developing and advancing my A story. 
and then I'll spend 25% of my content time on my B story. And then the remaining percentages would be kind of delegated down to a D story. And that would start to change every week. And so that my C story all of a sudden started getting a little bit more time as my A story started playing out over that same period of time. So what that does is it kind of, it keeps you in a positive cycle. So you're planting seeds and you're, you're, you're beginning certain stories at that C level or D level. You're planting seeds, you're establishing characters, you're, you're laying the foundation for a story, a conflict, whatever it may be between individuals in a subtle or not so subtle way sometimes. And then as time goes on, you begin to heat that up. And what happens is you, you constantly have your stories kind of reaching the peaks of the respective arcs over an extended period of time. It's easier to explain this on a whiteboard than it is on a podcast, but it was really, it really became, it's really sort of becoming effective. And, you know, although it wasn't, you know, this is going to be in the eyes of many people who don't really study the TNA product or didn't study it or really look at it closely from, uh, you know, the period of time when I really started getting involved in creative other than just Hulk Hogan's creative about a year and a half or two years after I got to, to TNA. If you look at this, uh, the, the Aces and Eight storyline, for example, you know, that's a perfect example of an idea that started as a C story and then evolved into the B story level and then in a very deliberate manner became the A story. And it was, you know, I'm going to say this is relative to TNA, hugely successful. I mean, you talk to Billy Ray, Billy Ray, you know, talk to the people that were involved, go back and actually research the numbers, not only in terms of television ratings, but look what that storyline did for TNA's live events during that period of time. And again, don't take my word for it. You know, listen to to Bully talk about it or read some of his tweets and the, the information that supports it. It's a very, very effective way of doing things if you can really understand it and see it and and utilize it. And I, I think that Sting in 1997, as we discussed, you know, wow, great idea. And it was really Scott, Scott Hall's idea. It wasn't mine and it wasn't Sting's originally. Sting embraced it and made it work and made it better than the original idea that, that Scott Hall threw out. But it, when we saw it and, and I saw, okay, this is the, this is the brass ring. I've been, yes, we had the NWO, we changed the business. WCW's fortunes were completely turned around 180 degrees. We went from being a, a deep, dark shithole that Turner was throwing money in to a profit center, you know, making headlines and variety, all kinds of great shit. Right. Um, it, but Sting was that opportunity to finally get it right, you know, in terms of playing out in a story over an extended period of time. All right, Eric, we got to run another timeout right now to talk about something you and I both love. It's the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Look around you. It's a wireless world. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. And before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out what Eric and I use. You need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know that Raycon earbuds start at like half the price of other premium earbuds. But what you need to know is that they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, 
are the best ones yet. You get six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable. They're perfect for on the go listening or taking phone calls. I've had a great time with these. I first used them on a plane and I have been sold ever since. These are my go-tos around the office. And unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet. There's no dangling wires or stems. And you've heard us talk about how co-founded by Ray J there's other celebrities, Snoop Dogg, Brandy, J.R. Smith, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge. Everybody is obsessed with the Raycons. And now you can pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. So it's time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off when you go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. You'll get 15% off your Raycon wireless earbuds. One more time. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. And that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash 83 weeks. I'm curious, you know, you talked about uh, Scott Hall there, and a lot of people have um, sort of made that a wrestling legend that perhaps Scott Hall was the first guy to, to pitch the, the whole crow look. Let's talk about Sting's involvement, though. How did he feel about the big change? I mean, obviously, he had started to grow his hair out, and, and it was getting, you know, it was his more natural color, dark hair, not the, not the blue or not the, uh, the blonde flat top but the longer, darker hair that had happened ahead of this. Was that done with some sort of character change in mind? I mean, was that a deliberate attempt to change from surfer sting or just be more with the times? And then how did he feel about sort of moving away from the bright colors? And, uh, now we don't talk and we're, we're sort of monochrome. It it was really interesting, you know, and, and Steve Borden, AKA sting, He's a really, um, he's a very smart guy, and and he's he's very intuitive. He he could, he gets it right. And you know, again, going back to '96, when you know, before Hulk Hogan and I sat down in his you know movie trailer in the middle of nowhere, California, um, talking about who was going to be the third man, and before Hulk threw his hat in the ring or his headband, as the case may be, the third man was going to be Sting because I thought Hogan was off the table. He had made it clear to me the year before that he had no interest in turning heel. He was off making a movie. He was happy doing his four pay-per-views a year for WCW because that's all he was contracted for. Um, So he just, you know, Hogan wasn't an option. It didn't even occur to me to ask him. And as a result of that, I went to Sting because I thought Sting would be the right guy. You know, he was a longtime WCW, you know, he was the hero. He was the ultimate baby face. He was our hood ornament. And Sting was, I know we've covered this before, but I think it's important since we're talking specifically about Sting to to dig into it a little bit again. When I first went to Sting, um, he was... Gosh, and you have to know Steve to really picture how this went. But Steve is, in some respects, he's a little bit like Hulk in that when you lay something out to, to when I laid something out to Steve Sting, he would sit and he would study. It's like he's listening to every word you're saying to 
I think partly, and this is just my impression, I don't know that this to be true, and I certainly don't want to speak for Steve Borden or Sting, but I would often get the impression that he was he wasn't going to be convinced unless he believed I was convinced. In other words, I think Sting having had been in WCW for a long time, he'd been through a lot of bookers, he'd been through Dusty, he'd been through Kip Fry, he'd been through Bill Watts, Jim Ross, he'd been he'd been through it all, right? And heard a lot of stuff. Some of it good, some of it not so much. But I think with Steve he didn't really start taking an idea seriously unless he felt the person pitching it was really, really excited about it. And sometimes, and you know this, Conrad, you know, you work, you train, you teach people how to sell. Uh, you're a great salesman yourself. You know, you if you feel it and you believe it, the information that you share, the picture that you paint, whatever you're trying to, to accomplish, you know, in, in a selling kind of a position is much more effective if you really, really believe in it or passionate about it, as opposed to representing it. You know what I mean? Sure. And and I think so many times in Steve's past, again, this is just me observing, you know, from a distance. I think so many times in Steve's past, a lot of ideas were represented to him, but very few of them had the passion or the commitment behind it. So oftentimes, I think Sting's process, much like Hogan's, you know, Hogan would sit back and, you know, <clears throat> kind of stroke that Fu Manchu and he had big old eyes kind of bore a hole through you like he was listening to every word you say. What he was really doing is analyzing every word you said and looking for the weaknesses in the idea or the holes. In, in Hulk's case, you know, he was always thinking two steps ahead. Okay, great. That's a great idea. Where does it go? And if you didn't have a where does it go from here answer or the next step in the story or arc as the case may be, you'd often, no matter how good the original idea was, you'd hit a brick wall. Well, Steve was very much like that in the sense that he would analyze and hang on every word. He was very quiet. He didn't, you know, as I'm as we're laying this idea out, especially when I was laying out Sting being the third guy, he he was very, very quiet. During, you know, my first couple of go arounds with him laying it out and he got it, you know, he, he knew, I think he also knew because he was so intuitive, Sting knew that the surfacing character had run its course. It didn't mean it was dead. It didn't mean it wasn't successful. It's just nowhere else to go with it other than a fresh matchup. And sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes a character, especially one that's been successful, for as long as Steve had been successful, the Sting character had been successful in WCW, with everything else changing around him, Sting being him, including the NWO, he, intuitively he knew, look, it's, it's time. I love the Sting character. He was very secure in it. He was making a lot of money with it. He knew that the Sting character, the surfer Sting as people refer to it, or I sometimes refer to it, you know, it was a very strong character. It wasn't going anywhere. But that was the problem. It wasn't going anywhere. It was in a good position. The character was in a good position, and it was important, but it really wasn't going anywhere. And Steve was smart enough to see that there were a lot of things going on that probably made sense to him to take that next step, which is why Sting was willing to turn heel. 
and be the third man because he saw the handwriting on the wall. He knew that he didn't know, just like the rest of us didn't know, that the NWO was going to be hugely successful. But even in the early stages of the NWO angle, when Scott Hall first came down in Macon, Georgia on May 27th, 1996, and interrupted you know, a match with Mike Enos and whoever Mike was wrestling, um, there was an energy and a buzz that no one had ever seen before, at least in WCW, a, a, you know, that caveat, but he knew it and he wanted to be a part of it. So I, I, I think by the time now we're going to fast forward. Now we're talking about 19, you know, May 27th, 1996. Now fast forward to 1997 stings intuition was confirmed. NWO was hot as hell. Things were changing rapidly. The, the entire formula for baby faces and heels was turned on its head. Anarchy was at the core of most of the story regarding NWO, and it was believable, and people were a part of it. And by 1997, Sting, and he had, to your point, he had started kind of evolving away from Surfer Sting because the reality kind of approach to what we were doing, at least in our A stories, was so effective that Sting started, I think, on his own. He wasn't directed by me to start letting his hair grow out. I didn't tell him not to either. Um, but that was all Sting because he knew that that his character had to evolve. All of them do. All characters have to evolve. And even in movie franchises, characters evolve. Even though they're successful characters, they have to evolve in the story and in the times. And Sting knew that. So by the time, you know, Scott Hall and I and Kevin Nash and Hulk and maybe one or two others were sitting in a locker room somewhere right before Nitro – or a couple hours before Nitro, and thank God, you know, Scott Hall was one of his, in one of his moments, was lucid, he was motivated, he was inspired, um, inspired and, and motivated, I guess, are in this, is the same word, but or same thing, but he was really passionate about this idea. And I think it was Scott Hall's ability and his passion for the Crow character that got Sting excited for much the same reasons as I described before, because Sting was the kind of guy that would sit and really listen, not only to the idea, but the passion and the inspiration behind it and, and how well you could paint that picture. And I found in my own, just my own experience that, you know, when people would pitch me ideas and I learned, you know, from Hulk and I learned from others who were legitimate I say legitimate, but I mean outside of wrestling, storytellers, people that have written and directed, you know, blockbuster movies and 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 have been involved in you know episodic television outside of wrestling. And from my own experience producing um, television other than wrestling, how significant story beats are and passion and detail is and where things are going. And and Scott in in that very inspired, lucid hour and a half or two hours that we probably spent discussing this new character, painted a picture that Sting, he was just drooling. He couldn't wait to launch this character. So there was no inhibition. There was no second you know, thoughts or he wasn't doubting himself. Sting wasn't doubting himself or second guessing himself. The way Hall laid it out, the opportunity that that character clearly had with its relationship to the NWO and how that story could play out, 
I mean, none. We were all just chomping at the bit to do it. Nobody more than Steve Borden. How much influence did he have? Or uh, I mean, we've often heard sort of the creative process, at least from the way Bruce describes it, is they would sit around and say, "Hey, what if?" Is Sting actively involved in that, or is it more he shows up, you guys tell him what to do, he goes and does it? No, not Steve. Now, there were two Steve Bordens. There was the one. Now, this isn't fair for me because, again, I didn't work closely with with Sting. Or not fair of me, I should say. Not fair to me. It's It, it wouldn't be fair for me to kind of uh, characterize Sting's involvement in his own creative prior to me getting involved with creative because I wasn't a part of it. Right. So I don't, I don't know how active sting really got in, you know, with dusty or, or, or Bill Watts or Jim Ross or anybody else that was booking or had an influence in booking at the time. I know with me, especially, you know, in 96, 95 and 96, he, he was, he was very active in it. Steve would come up with his own what ifs. And one of the things I love about Steve Borden as a person and, and, and working with him professionally is he could come to you with an idea and be excited about that idea. And if it didn't work because of timing or it didn't work for, for any reason, and you lay that out to Steve, it wasn't like, ah, oh, fuck, this place sucks. This booking sucks. You're not doing what I want to do, which... I'm not saying, you know, people were quite that animated and childish outwardly to my face or to the face of other people, you know, whether it be Dusty or, you know, Bill Watts or whoever. Um, But oftentimes that's a reaction. That's the way people feel. And a lot of that has to do with how you tell them or, or how you explain to them why an idea won't work. But Steve wasn't that guy. It was like, you know, if, if he came to me with an idea and the timing wasn't right for it or it just didn't fit or whatever, you know, you, you listen, he laid it out, you explain it to him, and he was just as positive leaving the room as he was coming in. That's the kind of people I love working with, and that's why I love working with Steve Borden so much, because he was that guy. But as time went on, and and once he jumped off, you know, the cliff and wrapped himself in that crow character, he was very involved in that. He would come up with a lot of ideas on his own. And he would be included in almost every discussion about the character, especially in the very, very beginning. Um, so, yeah, he was very, in the for the first six months or so, he was very, very involved and very motivated. All right, Eric, we need to run a timeout right now and talk about our friends. Well... There's something awesome here that we've been keeping a secret. We're talking about magic spoon. They're our latest sponsor, but I was so excited about this because growing up cereal was like one of the best parts of being a kid. But as a grown up, I've not eaten a ton of cereal. I realized that a lot of that stuff is probably not the best way to start your day. And if you've been trying to cut down on carbs or sugar and unhealthy food, you've probably realized you can't eat anything like that anymore until now. Of course, we're talking about magic spoon. How's this sound? Zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. You got four awesome flavors, uh, cocoa, which is your chocolate flavor. You got fruity, you got frosted and blueberry. It tastes amazing. It's honestly too good to be true. 
And I know you and Mrs. B and of course, Megan, they love this. It's keto friendly. It's gluten free. It's grain free. It's soy free. It's low carb. It's GMO free, man. Magic spoon is legit. And I got to admit, I wasn't sold because I'm not a huge cereal guy. Or so I thought I wasn't, I tried some of the fruity and the cocoa, dude, this stuff's awesome. It is awesome. And I'm so excited to have magic spoon as a sponsor as many listeners know and i know conrad you do mrs b is a serious serious um nutritional advocate she literally reads every label of everything that comes through the door in our home and she's studied it for the past 20 years and the last seven or eight years extensively and taking courses and classes with some of the top nutritionists from around the world and what people don't realize especially parents is there is so much sugar in processed food. And sugar is often called by different names because, you know, it's marketing, right? Sugar manufacturers know that most people that are thinking realize that sugar is not a great thing to feed your kids. And not only not a great thing, it's fucking poison, by the way, but it, 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 they masquerade it as other products that aren't as easily recognizable. And when you've got a product that is this high in protein and this low in net carbs, you're right. It's not only keto friendly, but it's so much better for you. And sending your kids or yourself out to work or sending your kids to school loaded up with sugar is such a – you talk about self-inflicting damage. You know, I know a lot of other things get a lot of other attention in terms of being unhealthy. But if you do your research, sugar is probably one of the worst of, of them all. So very, very excited. I think we're doing a service by offering this this product to our listeners, and I'm proud to do it. Well, we're excited that Magic Spoon is here, and you should be too. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks to grab a variety pack and give it a try today. And be sure to use promo code 83 weeks at checkout, and you'll get free shipping. And by the way, Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Why wouldn't you do this? It's magicspoon.com slash 83 weeks and use the code 83 weeks for free shipping. That's magicspoon.com slash 83 weeks and use the code 83 weeks for free shipping. And of course we thank magic spoon for sponsoring the podcast. Let's keep it going here. Let's talk about 1997. Um, we start the year with January 20th nitro Randy Savage is going to start nitro by taking over the show. He's going to hold court in the ring. And when random officials try to stop him, he beats him up after about 10 minutes or so sting repels down from the ceiling and casually walks to the ring with his bat. He pokes Savage with the bat, hands it over and turns his back. Savage throws it back and they leave together through the crowd. Lots to unpack here. But this is the first time we would see Sting rappel down from the ceiling. Do you remember how that idea came together? And, and I know you're going to laugh when I say this, but we had seen it, as far as I know, one other time in wrestling when Ranger Ross would rappel down from the ceiling. He famously did it at Clash of the Champions 6 in New Orleans. And now we're seeing a different WCW character do it. And for some reason, goddamn, it's so much cooler. Yeah, I, I wasn't... And hearing you talk about Ranger Ross repelling from the ceiling, this is the first time I've heard that. I, I, I don't think I was in WCW at the time. I certainly didn't watch it, um, yada, yada, yada. But I, I think the reason it worked the way it worked so well 
with Steve is because of the mystique that we created before that repel. I mean, I mean that's a whole, that's the, the magic and the God, I, I gotta be careful how I say this. I get excited and sometimes I get ahead of myself and in doing so, sometimes I don't paint the picture as clearly as I should. So I'm going to slow myself down just a little bit. The, just like with the NWO, there were multiple reasons that story clicked. And part of it was because there was a, a believability factor. The, I know wrestling's wrestling, but this is, this could be true. This might be real. And it confused when I use uh, confuse isn't the right word, but it's the only word I can think of right now. But it put the audience in a position where they weren't sure. And you, you maybe have heard me say this before. I, I can never remember where I say some of the things I say because I do so many interviews and other podcasts and shit like that. But I've, I've always believed, again, going back to when I was a kid watching wrestling in Minneapolis. You know, I was smart enough at 14, 15 years old to know that, well, that can't be true. <laughs> that can't be real. But there were always certain things that would happen during the course of Vern Gagne's AWA show when I was a kid that even subconsciously I would say to myself, okay, I know the rest of the stuff is just fun and this is great, but these two motherfuckers really do hate each other. That's the magic right there capturing and it's easy to understand right everybody understands what i'm saying the differentiation between an obviously scripted for entertainment you know presentation and then one that feels so real that it makes you doubt yourself as to whether or not it's true and that was the part of the magic that was the foundation for the magic of the nwo now add to that the fact that it was reality based and they weren't characters. We didn't call Kevin Nash Jupiter and Scott Hall Mars. And, you know, there was just so much reality to it that it enhanced the believability or the, I call it the Memorex factor. Is it live or is it Memorex? Is it real or is it not? And we created that Memorex factor in a number of different ways with the NWO. Well, we did the same thing with Steve in a different way, but we couldn't replicate the exact same thing that we did with the NWO because it would have been obvious and boring. So with Steve, the, the essence of that character, and I think the reason it worked is before we did anything, we created mystique. Now I'm not going to go into too much deep. Well, I'm going to hold that. I'm going to save that for a minute because that'll take me off track. But once you've established a mystique, that works and connects to the audience. You, similar to the, God, is that real? Or is it, I mean, this could be true, Memorex factor with the NWL because there was so much believability to it. Um, you can accomplish the same thing by creating a mystique. Because you, what you're really doing from a psychological point of view, from a storytelling psychological point of view, is you're, you're engaging the audience and you're forcing or encouraging them to start asking themselves questions, which is another thing that I learned through, you know, just the process that 
so often in wrestling prior to 96, prior to the NWO, prior to Sting, the formula as it is today, we, unfortunately, we've kind of reverted back to the formula that existed prior to Nitro today. Um, the formula is to promote, 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 promote. Tell us, tell the audience, tell the audience, tell the audience. You know, hype next week, hype next week, hype next week. You're taking all the mystery out of it. You're taking the suspense out of it. You're disengaging the audience, at least on a subconscious level, because they're not asking themselves any questions. They're not asking themselves, oh, my God, well, what, what's going to happen next week? Well, wait a minute. I thought this was true, but something else is true. Oh, my gosh, I'm engaged. That's how drama works. And it's not, a, it's not a secret by any stretch of the imagination, but it just had never been applied to professional wrestling the way we did at that time. So by keeping the mystery around, first of all, an abrupt character change that was inspired because of the story. And what was that story? You know, from, and, and, and I'll talk about that a little bit from the storyteller's point of view as opposed to the audience's point of view. But Again, you know, so much of this is all about the NWO, but this, the Crow Sting character was a manifestation of the NWO. When the NWO hit and all of a sudden it was anarchy, the heels were in control, NWO was there to crush WCW. Um, that was the you know, broad-based premise of that. And as a result of the impact of the NWO storyline-wise, a lot of people within WCW were beginning to, the baby faces were doubting themselves. The baby faces were back on their heels, just like they would be in a match, you know, when they, when the heels, you know, get an upper hand in a match and the baby's face is selling his ass off, waiting for that moment to make their comeback. You know, it's, it's simple shit in a way, but applied over an extended period to, uh, to a storyline. It's a little bit different. So all of our, Baby faces, all of the guys that would ultimately, according to the you know previous formula, would get their asses kicked for two or three weeks to get their comeback at the pay per view. Now things were different. Now the NWO was dominating, and they were staying in control, and and that caused the WCW roster to start to f fracture. The baby faces storyline wise started doubting themselves. Then the question was going to be, because we started adding people to the NWO, right? Well, fuck, who's next? All right, can I trust you? Can I not trust you on the WCW side of the, the equation? And then when people started doubting Sting because of the Jeff Farmer fake Sting thing, that was the final straw for Sting. He had done so much. You know, I'm, I'm kind of going in and out of storytelling and, and kind of remembering history here, but at, at that time, from a character point of view, from a storyline point of view, Sting was the guy that had always been there for WCW. He was the one thing they could always count on. And now, because of the oppression and everything that was going on with, with NWO, all of a sudden, people that were close to Sting started questioning him. And that put the Sting character over the top. That's when he went, fuck it. <laughs> and he grabbed his dark shit and his bat and his fucking vulture and we created this mystique with him. The mystique precipitated the drop. So by the time we established this spooky, mysterious, you know, 
character with all this mystique and the audience was going what the fuck what's happened to sting is he turning nwo because the crow character was black and white right there was doubt it forced the audience to to start to wonder and be curious about what's going to happen next and it was done very artfully some of it by sheer fucking luck not totally by design but there was also a lot of you know thought behind it and architecture behind it and it just worked so by the time we dropped them out of the ceiling we had already invested in the character sufficiently enough to reap the dividends and that's probably why it got the reaction it got well sting nervous about doing the repel spot did you guys have to bring in a bunch of professionals to practice this uh sort of talk me through the the actual execution of of getting it done no well, of course he was nervous. Um, anybody in their right mind would be. Uh, it was dangerous, uh, as we all know. But I had hired a guy by the name of Ellis Edwards, who, by the way, still works for WWE to this day, doing much the same things uh, or many of the same things that he used to do for me in WCW, which was staging all the crazy backstage shit, car wrecks, any kind of stunt or you know anything that required <clears throat> something other than a headlock and a wrist lock backstage, usually Ellis was involved. And Ellis had worked as a stunt man in Hollywood. He worked on a couple of movies that Hulk worked with. That's how we found him, or he found us. Um, so when you know we were talking, and I believe, God, I'm trying to remember the first time Ellis came to me with the idea, and it really was his idea to repel. Um I believe we were at lunch somewhere in Atlanta and he was pitching this idea to me about having the crow character repelling. And I, you know, of course I was excited about it cause it was easy for me to visualize, but not being a stunt person or certainly not being the guy that's going to be repelling from the ceiling. Um, it was easy for me to get excited about it when Ellis and I, I think pitched it to, to Steve originally. Um, I would say it was kind of a 50-50 thing with him. He saw it. He loved the idea of it. But Steve Borden is a very intelligent guy. <laughs> and he wasn't going to put himself in a situation that you know was dangerous, at least you know, sufficiently more dangerous than what he did for a living anyway. So it took a little bit of convincing, but he wasn't like – uh, he, he didn't like jump all over the idea and say, fuck yeah, let's do it. Come on, let's go figure out how to make this work. Nor did he say, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. He was somewhere in between until, again, you know, Ellis did a great job of explaining how the stunt would, would go down, um, how it would be executed. We went out, Ellis, I shouldn't say we, Ellis went out and got like a 240-pound crash dummy somewhere that had, you know, articulating joints in the whole nine yards. And, you know, we practiced the stunt several times with a stunt, uh, with, with, with a crash dummy. Uh, and so Steve could see it happen before him and then started doing it, you know, and I think he may have repelled the first time or two with another stunt person just to get the hang of it and get confident and then go through it. You know, we did that during the course of a day when there was no talent or excuse me, there were no fans in the arena and things like that. So he, he worked on it for a couple of weeks before we actually tried to pull it off. And by the time we were ready to pull it off after the first time or two, he was quite comfortable with it. 
All right, Eric, let's talk about something that is uh, near and dear to everybody's heart right now. Getting food delivered to the house. Thank you. Grubhub man together. We can help save the restaurants. We love every order on Grubhub helps support your local community as well as restaurants who are now relying on delivery and pickup orders during this very challenging time. Contactless delivery is also available all from Grubhub. They've got special promotions that are available daily. You can even look for neighborhood specials so you can save some money and see a restaurant. Go ahead and do well. Your pickup or delivery order can help save a local restaurant in this very difficult time. And man, it's never been easier. You know, we're hearing that grocery store shelves are empty left and right. People are really struggling to find what they need. Why not get it delivered? You can also donate your change on every order to support the Grubhub Community Relief Fund, and you'll support restaurants and drivers that have been impacted by COVID-19. And just for our listeners, you can download the Grubhub app and enter our promo code 83 weeks, and you'll get $10 off when you order $15 or more for new diners. That's promo code 83 weeks, and you'll get $10 off any order of $15 or more for new diners. Download the Grubhub app today and use the promo code 83 weeks to enjoy the restaurants you love, but delivered. And right now, man, there's never been a better time to jump on the Grubhub bandwagon, right? No doubt. But you know what I miss most about living in Stanford, Connecticut? Uh, food delivery the, services like this. The one thing, the only thing, not that Stanford is a bad place, just not a good place for me and my wife. But the one thing that I miss is there was this amazing Chinese restaurant. And Chinese food is so good. Chinese food is really hard to find nowadays. It's out there, but you got to work at it. But there was a Chinese restaurant. I think it was called Paul Chang's in <clears throat> Stanford that was about you know, 15 minute, 18 minute drive from my house or our apartment. And we stumbled across them one day. Mr. B and I were out shopping for something and came across them in the mall. And I originally thought it was part of the PF chain franchise, which is not bad, but it's not phenomenal. And we were hungry. So I walked in, I took a look at the menu and I, oh my God, this is life changing. I do like Stanford and Grubhub delivered food from there. So for the first month and a half after discovering this phenomenal restaurant and Grubhub, by the way, it was the first time I'd used Grubhub, I became addicted to both. I was eating Chinese food two nights a week, three nights a week, all delivered by Grubhub and started getting really, really happy with it. So I do miss Grubhub. I really encourage it, obviously, for all the right reasons right now. But it's a great service. It's fast. Drivers are friendly. It's easy. And the list of restaurants that you know are supported by Grubhub and vice versa um, are long and many. So you can virtually, whether it's sushi or where we were in Stanford, we could get sushi, we could get ribs, we could get Chinese food and from some of the best restaurants around. So give it a shot. You won't be disappointed. Help your local restaurants, help your local community and support Grubhub who support us here. Download that app. Use our promo code 83 weeks. Why not try it? Save yourself some money. It's Grubhub. Let's talk about the bat. Such a uh, big part of the character. And uh, I mean, bats have been used in wrestling, I guess, as, as props and fights for a long time. But this is the first time we see it be like a, a signature of a guy and it's always a black bat. How did this come to be? Do you remember whose creative influence that was or anything about the bat? You know, I don't, I don't know whose idea it was originally. It was something that probably just came up in a, 
a brief conversation. It wasn't a big deal when it was added to the character, at least at the time. Now, it became a big deal because the way Steve Singh used that bat, you know, it wasn't so much that he'd use it again, mystique. That's, I keep going back to that because it was just like reality was the, was the, the, the nuclear power behind the NWO mystique was the, the nuclear power behind the crow character stings crow character. It was all about that. So when he came down the first time with a bat, first couple of times with the bat, he didn't use them on people. He, he pointed it. It was a statement. It was his way of putting people on notice in a way that wasn't clear to the audience. Again, why is he doing that? What does this mean? Where's Sting going? How is he feeling? What's going through his mind? All of those things were very compelling to, to the audience. So to answer your question succinctly, I don't know who came up with the, the idea of the bat, but I think what's more important when we look back at how it worked for him was he didn't just use it like everybody else had used it. It right. wasn't just a gimmick to beat the fuck out of somebody in a, you know, in a free-for-all in a match or in a, you know, in a no-holds-barred match or a tough-man match or whatever. He used it as a prop to intimidate. And I think as a result, it became much more significant to his character and in the eyes of the audience. The next week, the January 27th Nitro, Hogan and yourself are in the ring. Hogan's doing a promo, which is, of course, very common in this era. Uh, you're you're helping him poke fun at Randy Savage and Roddy Piper and the Giant, who've all lost, lost to Hulk Hogan. And a few minutes later, Savage and Sting are standing in the crowd together. You're trying to sort of sweet talk Savage while Hogan is doing the same. And Sting's appearance only lasts less than a minute here. But it's pretty impactful. It sort of sets the stage for what we're going to see for the rest of the year. And I think this is the first time Sting and Hogan are in the arena on television at the same time since uh, Sting changed to this Crow version of the, this character since uh, September of 96. And it's interesting to note that in this era, Meltzer was saying that the original plan was supposed to be Sting, Hogan at the uh, February pay-per-view Super Brawl. But it was decided to hold off on the in-ring return until Hulk Hogan at Starcade. Do you remember there being a plan, whether it was against Hogan or not, for him to compete in the ring at the February Super Brawl pay-per-view? That was sort of a, a tentpole event for you guys. I don't know if that's <clears throat> accurate or not. I, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, shit on it because I, I, I just don't know. Right, I, I don't recall. The February third Nitro, Hall and Nash are beating up DDP. And then Savage and Sting appear and the outsiders leave the following week, Sting and Savage come to the ring while DDP is in there and, uh, they, uh, set him down on a chair and do the bat test with him. DDP doesn't hit him from behind with the bat and then Sting and Savage leave the ring. Uh, this is interesting that, you know, here we are a month into this now and the pairing of Sting and Savage continues is this because at the time you felt like well if we're not going to let sting talk we need a mouthpiece or is it just a way to sort of play hokey pokey with the macho man and the nwo no it wasn't a way to play hokey i mean it was more to it than just playing hokey pokey i mean again the premise of the story at least at that point was nwo versus wcw 
a lot of the WCW talent, as I talked about a few moments ago, had started to question the character, Sting, weren't really sure that they could trust him, which put Steve over the edge, which forced him into a state of mind that he had never been in before. Ergo, the massive change to his character and the mystique that ensued. Now, by him, Sting, starting to come back, aligning himself with Savage, who at that point was a WCW guy, and, and against Hogan and the NWO. And then, you know, who's who else can Sting trust? That's why he did the bat test. Now, all of a sudden, Sting, at this point, Sting is starting to put together teams of people, groups of, or individuals that he could trust, that trusted Steve. And trust was, you know, trust was the commodity that was lacking in WCW because of what NWO was doing to them. They were they were disoriented. They were confused. Much like society is right today over this fucking coronavirus thing, right? Everybody, you know, people are buying up goddamn toilet paper. Well, quit buying so many fucking potato chips and Cheetos, and you won't shit as much. You won't need as much toilet paper. Use your head, right? That's <laughs> go off on a tangent. <laughs> you know, I can't believe it. I'm just I'm gonna go off on a tangent here. I, I went I, I went into Walmart the other day. I got up at six o'clock in the morning. And we've, you know, we're fully stocked here. I mean, I'm again. I I know I've got it better than most people, you know, in terms of where I live and how I live, in a crisis like this, right? But I've I've got a safe full of, you know, rifles and ammunition. I got deer and elk, you know, crossing my property all day long. I can look out over a lake that's full of fish. I got water. I got heat. I got plenty of food walking around my property. I'm good, you know. No matter what hits the fan, I'm pretty fucking good as long as I stay healthy. Um, but I do have certain things that we need. So Mrs. B sent me to Walmart and I, Walmart has this thing, at least the one here in Cody, Wyoming, where senior citizens, God, I hate admitting this publicly, senior citizens of which I guess I am one because I'm turning 65 in May, get to get in the store an hour before anybody else, before all the shelves get picked through. Now, I don't feel like a senior citizen, especially now. I mean, I'm Get myself in decent shape. I feel good. Nothing hurts. I've got no aches, pains, issues, or anything else. But I'm, well, fuck, you know, according to my driver's license and the AARP shit that I get in the mail every other day, I'm one of those people. So fuck it. I'm going to take advantage of it. So I go to Walmart. I go right back, you know, to get, you know, toilet paper and some of the things that I just want to have a few of. I'm not going to stock up on it. And of course, it was all gone already. And I get to the counter because I, I bought something. I bought some razor blades or some shit. And I'm standing in line, and this lady behind me, first of all, she wasn't a senior citizen. She cheated, the bitch. But I look at her cart, and it's filled, like, with frozen fucking pizzas and two-gallon jugs of Mountain Dew and Cheetos and Jiffy Pop and about everything you could possibly eat that wouldn't keep you alive for three days if you were on an island. I'm going, what the fuck? Oh, oh, and you know, she she, she was she, she had toilet paper. She had gotten there before I did. She had, and I'm thinking to myself, bitch, if you just put all that stuff back, your toilet paper is going to last you a long time. But whatever, I kept it to myself. Anyway, sorry. Side note: Where were we? <laughs> more. You know, see, you know what happens. You know, you and I have been doing these podcasts now for for almost two years now, maybe over. I can't remember, but. We've learned, I've learned, and I think you agree, um, that if you get me in the morning, 
because I'm just fucking jacked up on high quality coffee. Um, it's kind of hard to keep me on the rails or it's hard for me to keep myself on the rails, but it's way more fun. If you catch me at six o'clock at night, I'm kind of beat. I've been on the phone all day long. I got nothing, but these morning shows are great. <laughs> well, let's talk about something else. That's great. February 17th on nitro Hogan's in the ring, doing another promo sting starts to walk to the ring, but Savage stops in and then they go to the back. The following week is Super Brawl 7. Sting and Savage are walking to the ring during the Hogan-Piper match. But this time, Sting would stop Savage, and Sting walks away, thinking Savage is with him. But instead, Savage goes to the ring and helps Hogan and joins the NWO. The next night on Nitro, the NWO is in the ring doing a promo, and Sting appears from the back, entering the ring between the NWO and WCW rosters. And this is the first time Sting and Hogan are in the ring together since Fall Brawl 96. There's a face-to-face -face with Hulk. Hulk is going to hug him. Sting remains expressionless, but appears to now be with the NWO as the show concludes. This is really talking about your mystique and, you know, sort of the cliffhanger of what's going to happen next. It was, and I, I'm going to step into a little bit of a story about mystique and why I think it's one of the things that's missing. And it's also one of the things that's easiest to achieve. If you have the discipline to commit to it, as we did here, we proved it. And again, part of it was luck, part of it was timing, but also a part of it was understanding how people react to things and what was missing. And some of it goes back to, I know this is boring shit, right? It's not exciting. It's not telling a story about somebody who shit in somebody else's gem bag and all the things that happened as a result of it. But in the focus group, focus groups, because we did tons of them, that we did with TNT, we went around the country and we focus group different or groups of wrestling fans. Hardcore WWF fans, WCW fans, people that love wrestling, that watch it every week, people that used to watch it every week but don't, some people that just catch it every once in a while. I mean, they did a great job with this focus group. And you get a lot of input, you know, some of it valuable, eh, some of it not so much because you kind of knew it already. But there was one consistent theme that I heard in every one of these groups around the country, and that was we like to be surprised. And that drove so much of my creative, the things that I was passionate about, the things that I had a hand in directly, especially as it related to the NWO. And I think that scene that you just described between Savage and Sting, here again, what did, what did we accomplish in that scene? If you break that scene down, you know, in the weeks previous, Sting finally had somebody that he could trust. He was finally putting together a team of people that trusted Sting and Sting trusted them only to have one of the most significant characters turn their back on him and betray him. And betrayal is a powerful, powerful tool to use in storytelling. Betrayal, envy, greed, the seven deadly sins, you know, add to the list, whatever you want to do. But betrayal is a, is a human emotion that we can all relate to. It's not an intellectual kind of thing. You, you don't have to think through it. You feel it. You see it. You recognize it. And it's powerful because so many people have been betrayed or fear betrayal or have betrayed others. 
and that's why it's so easy to recognize. So that that was that beat right there. Let's keep it rolling. The March 3rd Nitro, Sting comes to the ring. The NWO is doing a promo. Sting's just standing there. He doesn't say or do anything. Later in the show, in the main event, Luger and the Giant are scheduled to battle the Steiner brothers, and it turns into a big fight thanks to NWO interference as they fill ringside and WCW guys are in the ring. Sting has his battle on the outside with the crowd chanting, We want Sting. And with the show heading off the air, Sting stays standing on the outside of the ring. So we're still stretching this out. What side is he on? What's he going to do? March 10th is the spring break nitro sting. Once again, comes to the ring with the NWO who's doing a promo. Uh, he just stands there. Doesn't say or do anything. The uncensored pay-per-view is just a few days later, March 16th. And the main event is team NWO, which is Hogan Savage and the outsiders with Dennis Rodman on the outside. Taking on Team WCW, which is Luger, Giant, and Scott Steiner. And they're taking on Team Piper, which is Piper, Benoit, Mongo, and Jarrett. Hogan pins Luger to win the match, and the NWO celebrating over Luger's body. Head out of the ring to leave, and then out of nowhere, Sting repels into the ring with his bat. Scott Hall enters the ring and gets nailed. Kevin Nash follows suit, then Randy Savage. Then Sting gives Savage the Scorpion Death Drop while Hogan and Dennis Rodman stand watching in the aisle. Sting points the bat at Hogan, and Hogan actually gets in the ring. We see Sting and Hogan in the ring again, and Hogan goes after him. Sting nails him with punches. Scorpion Death Drop to Hogan, and the show is over. Uh, this, this is a, a monumental moment in WCW. The pay-per-view just sort of was what it was, but the post-match, my God, it's one of the hottest things in the history of the company. Am I wrong? No, you're right. And again, I sidetracked myself um, in my last diatribe, um, and I'm going to be really, I'm going to be intentionally vague in general here because I have to be. So don't ask too many questions. But there was a there was a situation where I was trying to present an idea for the return of a new character. Not going to say where. Not going to say when. Not going to name names. And. This this new character, or not a new character, this returning character had been very, very prominent, but it had been out with an injury for quite some time. And I was in a room full of people, and and it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do with this character? Do we just kind of bring him back the way he was? How do, Who do we match him up with? What do we do with him? He's been gone for a long time. And this is a great character, by the way, um, still active in the business. And... My idea was for this character not to drop out of a fucking sky just the way he left a year or two years or six months or three months or whatever the time frame was because I'm trying to keep this murky as possible. Um, not just to pick up where this character left off, but rather because I wanted to take advantage of the absence makes the heart grow fonder factor and rather people going, Oh, he's back. And this is what he's going to do. And this is who he is. And this is who the character is just like hitting the, you know, refresh button, not even the refresh button, the rewind button. And my idea was, no, let's, and, and again, I was thinking the same character, but knowing that you have to do it differently. You can't just copy things blatantly. And, but you can, you can, you can use an idea and come up with a derivative based on a formula that, you know, that works. And let's, let's be honest, everything that we watch on television, not just wrestling, everything that we watch on television, every movie that we see is a derivative of something that happened before. 
there isn't a fresh fucking idea out there. All right. There's basically seven, and I don't know what the name of the book is, but there's basically seven stories that have ever been told in, 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 in human history. And everything that we watch is a variation of one of those seven stories. Right. So in me trying to explain how this could possibly be set up, um, I got shut down in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. And I was a little frustrated. I'm being kind. And I looked around the room and there were a couple people that knew exactly where I was going. And I just let it go. I just let it go. And it, and I was, I wasn't frustrated because, oh, my idea didn't get, you know, didn't make the table or any of that. It wasn't an ego thing. It was like, my God, let do something different, you know, and, and discipline, bring the discipline with it that, that we have proven. It has been proven. I won't even say we or I, it has been proven that if you craft a good idea and mystique and, and intrigue is at the core of that idea and you don't, you know, I'm trying not to be crude here. You, you, you don't shoot your load too soon. You don't, you don't hot shot it. Let it get, let the audience embrace it and be intrigued by it. It will work. doesn't work the same way as a hot angle. doesn't you know, work the same, the same way as driving over somebody with a semi truck or, you know, somebody, setting somebody on fire or, you know, any of the number, a number of other things that people do for attention nowadays um, or, or whatever, but it can work. I mean, that's the kind of thing I, I'd like to see more of, I just wish, I, I just wish there was more of it. And the ideas are there, you know, uh, I mean, the ideas are there, the, the concepts are there, but the layers to the concept, the depth of the concept and the discipline and the, the balls, quite frankly, to risk playing it out over an extended period of time. That's what we don't see. And part of that is the pressure. You know, again, I'm, I'm going to be fair here, so I don't sound like I'm criticizing anybody. Part of it, you know, part of the reason that we could pull off what we pulled off with the Sting character in 97, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this show, I had the luxury of time. We weren't under pressure. We were rolling. I had a deep roster. We had a plan with the NWO. The B story at this point, Sting, in, in, in the introduction of him, um, was a bonus and because the a story was functioning so well and the ratings were doing so well and the pay-per-views were doing so well and the house shows were doing so well licensed and merchandising was beginning to do well sponsorships were beginning to come in there was no pressure on me to go fuck this is a great idea now let's blow it off two weeks from now i didn't have that pressure so i i had the luxury of being able to take time which in today's environment doesn't exist there's a tons of ton of pressure on on producers now. Again, WWE, AEW, Ring whoever, um, any television series that you watch on television, any dramatic television series that you watch on television. There's a lot of pressure to keep people coming back each and every week. So, as a result, sometimes things get pushed faster than they than ideally they should, but. In some respects, you know, you don't really have much choice because you don't have the luxury of saying, okay, we're going to start this on March 26th 
and we're going to blow this off on December 15th or next March 26th. It's a luxury you don't have anymore. All right, Eric, we got to run another timeout right now to talk about something you and I both love. It's the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Look around you. It's a wireless world. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. And before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out what Eric and I use. You need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know that Raycon earbuds start at like half the price of other premium earbuds. But what you need to know is that they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are the best ones yet. You get six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, they're perfect for on-the-go listening or taking phone calls. I've had a great time with these. I first used them on a plane, and I have been sold ever since. These are my go-tos around the office. And unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet. There's no dangling wires or stems. And you've heard us talk about how co-founded by Ray J, there's other celebrities, Snoop Dogg, Brandy, J.R. Smith, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge. Everybody is obsessed with the Raycons. And now you can pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. So it's time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off when you go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. You'll get 15% off your Raycon wireless earbuds. One more time. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. And that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash 83 weeks. Yeah, I can't agree more. And this is fun because you really think about it. We're talking September, uh, fall brawl war games to now the end of March here, as you said. And, uh, it's the first time we really know what sting is going to do. Whose side is he on? He's let his intentions be known loud and clear here. He's with WCW and he's going after Hogan and the NWO. And the next night, the main event is the Steiner brothers versus Harlem. Heat on nitro is ruined by NWO interference, but the WCW guys are here to fight him. Sting repels into the ring, points the bat at Hogan. Who's in the aisle. Hogan is not too happy about this and looks scared. Fast forward to April 7th on Nitro. It's the night after the uh, Spring Stampede pay-per-view. Sting saves DDP from an NWO beatdown. He's rappelling into the ring with his bat. A week later on the 14th, Luger and Nash are wrestling, but the match ended quickly because of the typical outside interference. The NWO was beating on DDP, Luger, and the Giant when Sting comes to the ring and gives bats to all three. And the NWO quickly bail as the show goes off the air. This feels, uh, like it's becoming sort of the formula for nitro. We've got to end with the NWO giving a beat down and sting comes in. When did sting sort of become your closer? I mean, about this time. And again, it's, you know, it's not rocket science. It was working. The audience was reacting was, I mean, there was, it was so visceral and obvious, um, that it wouldn't have taken anybody with a half a brain to figure out, okay, this is working. Let's stick with it. You gotta, you gotta modify it. Gotta change it. Gotta, you know, keep it fresh. Gotta find new ways of doing it. Can't just do the same shit every week. You have to do the same shit every week, but in a different way, <laughs> um, hopefully. Um, but between the ratings and and seeing how we were performing at the end of the show, between the visceral reaction that we would couldn't not see, uh, being in the in the building. Or in the ring, in some cases, 
uh, it was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fucking fix it. Yeah, and it's clearly working here. You guys are firmly in control of the Monday Night Wars. We wouldn't see Sting again until the May 12th Nitro. On that show, you claim that you're going to do an interview with Sting. However, you end up interviewing the fake Sting. Of course, during this, the real Sting comes down. He quickly beats up the fake Sting. You run out of the ring and through the crowd as the show goes off the air. On May 19th, you say Sting will never wrestle Hulk Hogan. Then, of course, Sting comes from under the ring. A scorpion death drops you. We've, uh, we've talked a little bit about you and, and physicality in wrestling. Uh, what'd you think? What was worse? The uh, power bomb from Kevin Nash or the scorpion death drop from sting? Uh, n- I mean, neither one of them were bad. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say they were both equally, um, not uncomfortable. Uh, if, for me, for whatever reason, the death drop was a little more awkward. Sure. I guess because, I mean, if you go back and you look at, you know, the, the setup in, in June of 96, when Scott Hall punched me in the stomach. So I fold, so I fold up and get in position for the power bomb. I could see the floor. Yes. It was a little disorienting, you know, getting, you know, pulled up onto Kevin's shoulders and then thrown backwards. It it, it was odd. Not going to deny that, but through the largest percentage of that process of getting power bombed, I knew exactly where I was on the stage. I could see Kevin's feet. I was looking at the ground. I knew where I was with a, with the scorpion death drop. You know, I mean, I knew Singer was obviously behind me and, and could feel everything, but you can't see anything, right? You can't really anticipate. It just happens. And I was going backwards. So I guess if I had to pick between one or the other, neither one of them hurt I didn't get injured on either one of them. It, 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 there was no physical, you know, ramifications of either one of them. But in terms of just being disoriented, I was more disoriented on the death drop, just because of the nature of it, and not really being able to be involved in the whole process. Once Sting's got you, he's got you, and you're going. You're, you're not a part of that process. You just go. Whereas with Kevin and Scott. I was a part of the setup and process. So I felt like I was in a little more control. If that makes sense. We should mention this. Uh, if you want to go check this out, it's sort of a, a random little footnote, but it's May 19th, 1997. Uh, and as we said, it's a, uh, I think it's the last segment on the show. This is the only time I think that sting painted his neck white. Also, normally it was just the face. He went all the way into the shirt. So it looked like he was, uh, trying to do the full body paint. Of course, that's not the case, but. It's a different look for Sting. The next week, you and Hogan call out Sting. Of course, uh, the fake Sting uh, comes from under the ring. The real Sting repels from the ceiling, drops you with another Scorpion death drop. And the fake Sting is begging off. Hogan trips over the fake one who is revealed to be Buff Bagwell. Hogan escapes and the NWO regroups and comes after Sting and he reattaches the court and then zips up to the ceiling. That's a little different. I mean, we've seen him coming down. Now he's going up. You guys are trying out some different stunts here. Yeah. And it's one of the great things about momentum. You know, when you've got it, you can almost do no wrong. Um, when you don't, you can almost do no right. It's really tough. But at this point we had a lot of momentum. Things were working. The character was resonating with the audience, the sting character, the NWO story was resonating. Everything was resonating. So, 
you know, you're right. We had to try some different things. Like I said a few moments ago, you know, you pretty much are doing the same thing every week. You just got to find a, a little bit different way to do it to keep it fresh. And I don't know whose idea it was, but the idea of, you know, Sting repelling back up was pretty fucking cool. You know, the one thing I want to, to say here, and I'm not sure about the timeline, but as we're talking about the fake Stings and Jeff Farmer and, you know, eventually, you know, we brought New Japan into the fold. I was talking to um, Muda and Sonny a couple months back, and you know that the, according to Muda, um, the and Sonny, the NWO angle in New Japan was financially the most successful angle in the history of New Japan. And we often talk about it, how NWO changed the business here in the United States and <clears throat> how significant it was for WW, excuse me, WCW and its revenues. But the NWO story and the fake sting and Jeff Farmer, um, and, and along with Mudu and Chono and, and others who eventually went on to become NWO Japan was financially the most successful angle in the history of New Japan, according to Muda, who was there. Anyway, it's remarkable. Uh, this is the first episode of Nitro where we see someone from the NWO dress up like Sting. Of course, famously, you know, back at Fall Brawl, we got the fake Sting, Jeff Farmer. Um, but let's talk a little bit about dressing Buff Bagwell up. We're going to see other people do it, including <laughs> comically Kevin Nash. Uh, but Buff Bagwell as Sting, that's maybe a little hokey, but maybe fun as well, because it feels sort of Scooby-Doo-like or, uh, I don't know, Spider-Man-esque where other people are, are, are taking the Sting costume and dressing up. But it's a nice little wrinkle to the storyline. Yeah, I'd have to go back and see that because it doesn't uh, it doesn't ring a bell with me in terms of I know we did it, but I don't remember why or how. So I'd I'd have to go back and kind of look up at the setup for it and, and to try to determine what the intention was. The June 9th Nitro, we see a big brawl where Hogan is going to attack DDP, knock him out with the WCW title, and in the middle of the fight, of course, Sting repels down, takes DDP's body, and ascends to the ceiling with DDP attached to him. This is one of the most famous moments in Nitro history. Uh, such a stunt. You know, this is not something we've ever seen before. As we've seen him go up by himself, but it does feel like uh, a superhero type move here to swoop in, save somebody, and, and seemingly fly away with them. Yeah, it was a pretty big idea. And you're right. You've never seen it before. You've never seen it since, and I doubt you ever will. Uh, but it was cool as shit. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, it was so cool. It was, and again, you know, same idea, doing it just a slightly different way. We had seen Sting dropping, dropping, dropping. We'd seen him ascend once before, I think. And now you're seeing him ascend, go up into the roof, along with somebody else. Completely different twist or another twist on something we'd been previously doing as a way to keep it fresh. And it was cool as shit. Paige, did not, Paige was nervous about that. Of course. I mean, and, and, and I don't blame him. You know, I would have been too. Um, let me give everybody but, the date again, go see this. It is seriously one of the most famous things that happened that year with a sting sort of segment. It's June 9th, 1997 on nitro, man. It, it's so famous. Our, uh, our buddies wrestling arcade, they actually made uh, like a video game version of that, that I got to send to you so you can take a look at because it had quite the effect on people. It's not something they'd ever seen before. And, uh, that's, that's really what stands out. 
Yeah, it was it was cool as shit. I actually I'm gonna go back and look at it as soon as we're done here because I I remember it, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. So I'm gonna go back and check it out. June 20th. on the WWE Network, of course. June 23rd, a DDP Scott Hall main event ends in minutes due to interference from Randy Savage. The NWO beats up DDP for about the 300th time until Sting comes out of the crowd, scares him away. The following week on June 30th, the NWO is beating down DDP in his weekly appointment to get his ass kicked with the fake sting hanging out in the crowd for whatever reason. And then the real sting repels from the ceiling. Hogan runs away on the July 14th. Nitro Luger is in the ring doing an interview with Gene and the NWO comes out and surrounds him. A guy comes to the ring dressed as sting with long black wig and a fake sting mask. He walks through the NWO gets in the ring, takes off the wig and mask and it's sting. And the show goes off the air. I really liked this wrinkle because we had seen, you know, the, the fake sting and buff Bagwell dressing up as sting. So why not have sting impersonate himself? It's pretty fun. You would swear we were like eating peyote and shit. when we were coming up with this stuff. It was, (laughs) (laughs) we were just. When you talk, you know, you open up show like 1997 had to be, you know, one of the best times and the way you're laying this out, Conrad, and and I'm remembering it um, and seeing it in my head. It was such a cool time. And again, I'll, I'll say what I said a few moments ago. Momentum is a wonderful thing. Once you've got it, you can almost do no wrong. Without it, you can almost do no right. Well, we had we had momentum in abundance at the time, and and because of that, here's the other thing that happens when you've got momentum behind you. You're willing to do things that you might not do before. Or otherwise, right? You're willing to take a creative chance that you might not otherwise take, um, either for fear of you know criticism or the audience just not responding or the talent not really being willing. A lot of reasons why. Uh, it's human nature. But man, when you got when you got the mo behind you in a real way, not because your ratings went up two tenths of a point this week compared to the last week, or you know that, that's superficial shit. Those are rounding errors that don't really matter on a week to week basis, but when you've got serious momentum behind you, serious, um, it gives you the freedom to think differently and to try things that you might not otherwise try. First of all, you're coming up with ideas that you wouldn't have otherwise come up with because of the energy and the opportunities that momentum provide to you. And, and secondly, just inherently, I think humans being humans, you're willing to risk things you wouldn't otherwise risk because you know you've got a net um and that's kind of where we were and that's why it was so much fun because you you're willing to stand on the edge of a cliff while you're creating ideas and if you believed it and the kind of anecdotal evidence around you suggested that you're probably going to be right you'll fucking take that leap whereas if you're getting your ass kicked every week or you're struggling or you're trying to maintain um you don't and that was one of the reasons why 97 was so much fun. On the August 4th Nitro, J.J. Dillon is going to offer Sting a contract to wrestle Kurt Hennig. Sting tears it up, walks out of the ring and to the back. And later in the show, Lex Luger beats Hulk Hogan to win the world title. It's the highest rated segment ever in the history of Nitro, a 4.4. Uh, Lex loses it back to Hulk Hogan a few days later at the Road Wild pay-per-view. Uh, on the August 11th Nitro, which is coincidentally Hulk Hogan's birthday, J.J. Dillon's in the ring 
with uh, me and Gene. JJ says he has a new contract for Sting. Sting comes down from the ceiling. JJ tells Sting the contract is for a match with six. Sting once again tears it up. And Gene asks Sting who he wants. The crowd starts chanting Hogan and Sting leaves. Uh, We see another version of this on June 18th, where JJ is once again in the ring with Gene. Sting comes down from the ceiling. And this time, JJ says, Hey, man, just tell me who you want. Sting grabs JJ by the tie, points to the crowd. And Gene says he's pointing at a sign that says Hogan. Sting leaves the ring and gets a sign that says Sting versus Hogan, comes back in the ring and holds the sign. Fast forward a week later on August 25th. Listen, can we stop right there? Sure. That that scene that you just described was 75% laid out, 25% improv. And the most important part of that was Sting going out and getting the sign. Yeah. That was improv. That's the beauty of, number one, experienced talent that really get it, really get it, that understand psychology and understand their character at a much higher level than you typically see. Not being critical, just is what it is. And again, the momentum, in this case, Sting had all the confidence in the world that he could make his point. He knew what the point was. He knew what the goal was, but in a spontaneous way, he saw a better way to tell it and to keep the mystique alive. Fucking cool scene that you just described right there. Really cool scene. No doubt about it. Very cool scene. Uh, Again, if you want to sort of go take a look at that one, it's August 18th, 1997. Uh, But the following week, JJ now understands and says Sting or Russell Hogan You're in the ring doing an interview with Gene Okerlund, and you're saying it'll never happen. Sting walks to the ring from the back, and as he gets in the ring, you're saying it'll never happen, and uh, you tell Gene to tell him that. Sting is then standing behind you, and Gene says he'll tell him when he sees him. Sting puts his hand on your shoulder. You drop to your knees. Gene leaves the ring and calls you a chicken. Uh, Larry Sabisco on commentary says, what's he doing? Proposing. Sting pulls out a Hulk Hogan shirt and stuffs it down your throat. Sting never saying a word, but he does crack a smile. And it's the first time we've seen him do that on TV. Uh, since all of this started to happen, raw was, can I, can can I, can I stop right there again? Yeah. God, the shit you're describing is so cool and exciting because I can see it in my head. I don't remember the scene or remember doing it. I know I did, but, but the way you describe it is so fucking cool. And it, takes me back and again i don't want to sound like i've got this magic philosophy and it really really but this is the formula that worked for me at this time times have changed things are different tv's different may not apply anymore i'm not trying to suggest that people should do what we did but i'll go back to story anticipation reality surprise and action if this isn't the most clear illustration of how that Sarsa formula that I use so much during this period of time, if this isn't a fucking roadmap to how to apply that formula, I don't know what is. Again, we created the mystique with the story and the character. What we were doing right here was creating anticipation. The reality was there. 
the surprises each and every week were there in one one way, shape, or form. And the action at the end of the show brought us home. That when people hear me talk about Sarsa or story anticipation, reality, surprise and action, you know, I'm sure, you know, oh, that's just Bischoff talking out of his ass again or whatever. And uh, whatever. I don't really don't give a fuck. It doesn't cost me any money if you think that. So think whatever you want. But if you really look at the things that have worked, not only the NWO and the Sting idea, go look at any other story or angle that had legs. I'm not talking about a month hotshot angle or something that's set up a pay-per-view or you know, one time or any of that kind of shit. But look at the, the stories over the last two decades, three decades, four decades. I don't give a fuck. If it worked and it was a long-term story, there are elements of those ingredients in that story. And the more focus and discipline I think that people have on integ- really being honest with themselves and so going through the checklist. Okay, what is my story from beginning to middle to end and all the beats in between because they're important. What are the, what are the beats in between? How is that first, you know, I'll call it a first act. You know, how is that, what are we accomplishing during that first act? Are we establishing the character? Are we establishing the character's strengths and weaknesses? Are we establishing the character's aspirations? Are we establishing the conflicts with the character? That that should be the first act. The second act should be the conflict. And then the journey and almost failure of the character, if it's a babyface, during the course of that second act and how that plays out over a period of time. And a third act should be, you know, overcoming all odds and, and bringing it home. It's that fucking simple. It's just that simple. But for whatever reason, you don't see it all that much in wrestling. Everything is kind of week to week, show to show. And if there is any kind of a long-term play, it really doesn't have the right beats or the elements within the acts to, to sustain it at the level that it could or should. So I, I, I only drill this into or only drill into this conversation because I think the potential is there, you know, in any wrestling organization, whether it be the, the largest or an independent, it, it, you have the ability to come up with these ideas and it's really fun. People, if you're listening, if you're a wannabe writer, or when I say wannabe, I don't mean that in a derisive manner, but if you're an aspiring writer, or even if you're currently writing for somebody, you know, it's not that hard. Just think about it and go through that checklist and 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 apply those elements to your story and you'll be amazed, like we were, how well it can work. It may not, you know may not reach the level that we reach because you may not have the platform or the audience to react to it the same way, but it works. Anyway, sorry. Soapbox. Let me get off. Hold on. This fucker works a little bit. God damn, this fucker's heavy. Okay. I'm good. This uh, sting smile is uh, probably because he knew raw was preempted that week and nitro was going to get their biggest rating ever a 5.0, but believe it or not, we don't see sting again. Uh, until September 29th, the NWO is beating up WCW guys. Sting walks to the ring and beats up the NWO and never gets hit. Did you, I'm, I'm sorry, Conrad. I apologize for interrupting. Did you say 5.0? Yep. Okay. Just for our listeners' context, 
Do you know off the top of your head how? Because back then, every you know everybody compared ratings. They, nobody really understood what a rating was or how many people were watching as a result of a rating, because that wasn't you know the information that was reported necessarily by Nielsen unless you really did your homework. Now you know everybody's changed, and all anybody reports on is total viewers, which is cool. But do you have any idea, Conrad, how many viewers a 5.0 rating represented? At no, that time? No. Nielsen, I think, figured there was two, eh, one and a half people per household, I think, was the formula. Okay. So you're probably looking at about seven or eight million viewers. Compare um, that to today. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing. It's just fucking amazing. Since we're talking about it, you know, we get some questions from folks who maybe don't understand the difference between a rating and a share. Uh, run through the brief explanation of what share means. Oh God. I think it's a number of households using television at any given moment. Yeah. And the idea is if, if let's say there's a hundred TVs on or out of the 100%, if you have a 7% share, it means 7% of the folks watching TV at that very moment are watching your program. Right. Let's keep it rolling. Uh, we see him show up, uh, on October 13th and this is the infamous sting army. Uh, a bunch of fake stings make their way to the ring one by one, only to get knocked down and beat up by the NWO members. This goes on for a bit until finally the real sting is revealed and he beats up everyone. The fake sting army, man, this was a great idea. And it also created, or was maybe born out of a new piece of merchandise, which was the plastic sting mask that sort of mimicked his face paint. feels like a no brainer, probably costs a few cents to create. And you guys were just making money hand over fist with it. No shit, right? I wish I would have been a lot smarter about all that. I could have, like, I could have, at that point, I could have negotiated for almost anything I wanted, including probably a piece of merchandise and NWO stuff. Wish I would have done that. I'd still be making money hand over fist. Absolutely. Uh, Some friends of ours are still doing real well with it. Mucker feathers. (laughs) It is weird when you think about the guy who created it. Doesn't get a taste with the guys who wore the creation on TV. They do, but let's move along. Never, never claim to be the best negotiator in the world. <laughs> Which is why sometimes when we're doing podcast business, you say, Hey, you handle it. Whatever you say, I'm for it. Just uh, let me know when to show up. Well, no, that's a little different deal. I mean, look, I, I've, I, my nature, my, my style, if you will, or my approach to things is if somebody's better at something than I am. I'm not going to get in the fucking way by questioning or challenging or <laughs> throwing a bunch of goddamn roadblocks in the middle of a process. So with you, it's like, Hey, I've got an idea, Eric. We're, I'm thinking about doing it. Fuck it. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not the guy that's created five of the most you know successful podcasts in the history of wrestling podcasts. I'm not the guy that's driving a fucking Rolls Royce oh that's parked next to my Maybach. Oh my God. I'm not that guy. So who am I to go Conrad? No, I really don't want to do that. And, uh, no, no, I, I go with the flow brother. Now, if things weren't going as well, we'd both be sitting down over a beer, trying to figure out how to make it better. But right now I'm happy to be on the ride. Me too, buddy. Let's keep it going. October 20th, uh, DDP and Piper are dressed as sting and attack savage and Hogan. And then the legit sting repels down, beats up the NWO to close the show. This is fun, man. We're just having everybody in the fucking company dress up as sting at one point or another. It's working. Yeah, I came home from uh, 
came home from Nitro one one night, and Garrett was waiting up for me, and he was dressed up as Sting. That's awesome. I got a mucker, father. Come on, kid. Come on. But he had a blast with it. And you know what was even cooler? Is I had kids, and we lived in Atlanta at the time. And our kids were young, right? They were 12, 14 years old or whatever they were at the time, 97. Garrett would have been, how old would he have been, 84? He would have been 13 years old. So him and his buddies were out for Halloween, and Lori and I are handing out candy to the kids. And I've got kids coming to my house dressed up like Sting. And they don't even know me, by the way. It's not like they came to my house and go, oh, let's go to Bishop's house dressed like Sting. These were like little kids from outside the neighborhood that didn't even know who I was. And they were coming to our house dressed as Sting characters. It was fucking awesome. Hey, I'm curious. Um, did Garrett get any shit in school about his dad running the uh, the NWO? You know, yes and no. Um, I'm not bragging on my kid, but you know, he got his black belt when he was about 12, 13. From Ernest Miller, by the way, the Cat Miller, and I, and he had been training in karate and martial arts. Um, and I started him, you know, wrestling as a five-year-old in amateur wrestling and Garrett's a physical guy. Anyway, he, he's a, he's much more of a natural athlete than I ever was. Um, he's, he just is. And he's, yeah, he did, but he pretty much laid down the law early on in Atlanta. Uh, and, He'd get a little bit of shit. He'd whip somebody's ass and he'd get expelled from school. And I'd go, great. Let's go jump on a plane and go fishing. <laughs> you know, as I, like, you know, cause I told him, I said, you know, people can say whatever they want to you. They can make fun of you. They can call you names, whatever. Don't react to it. Don't sell it. Just move on. But the minute somebody lays a hand on you, all bets are off. Do what you need to do. Just hurt them because it'll <laughs> eventually the word will get out and people quit doing that shit. And I, I basically gave him a hall pass as long as, as long as he didn't touch anybody first or threaten to. You can't get away with that either. So you touch me, I'm going to kick your ass. That's that's encouraging it. But if somebody grabs you or starts pushing you around while they're giving you shit, just beat the fuck out of them, and don't let them up until they can't get up on their own. And then nobody will bother you anymore. And he kind of took that advice and caused some problems in school with him for you know couple weeks or a month or two and then after that he had no more issues just as a kid it feels like it would be kind of cool uh i don't know bring sting to show and tell it's fucking hilarious uh, <laughs> well yeah that wasn't gonna happen yeah, but i'm busting but he, no he he got his fair fair share of shit but it, but he also you know got his fair share oh man that's so cool you know probably more of that than you know, you'd have bullies and people that, you know, trying to get attention that would give him shit. But I would say 80% of the the people in his school or his classes or people that he knew were all really excited about it. God damn it. Shit. Those are the noises I used to make when I cut my bag meat before I knew about manscaped.com. <laughs> Thanks to manscaped for turning my loud shrieks into multiple peaks. Eric, we love manscaped and we love that our balls are Nick free now, right? Nick free aerodynamic smooth as a baby's behind. Very, very popular nowadays. Uh, start taking notes. Manscaping accidents are a thing of the past. No more nicks and cuts. Thanks to the manscaped lawnmower 3.0. They've still got the same great skin safe technology. It's going to keep your bad boys nice and smooth. They spent 18 months perfecting the new and improved lawnmower 3.0. 
The battery lasts up to 90 minutes. It's got an LED light. Uh, it's even got a cool charging stand. It's a rapid charging dock. Well, everybody's loving the lawnmower 3.0. It's changed their life, but please stop sending before and after photos to our socials. We don't need to see your junk, but we do need to see you try this for yourself. Seeing is believing you can get 20% off plus free shipping. When you use our promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com one more time, that's 20% off and free shipping with the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. One more time, 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use our promo code 83 weeks, your partner, your dick and your balls. will thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wrestling was super hot. This, this era, the NWO shirt specifically. And then of course, not too long after the uh, Austin 316 shirt, it made it cool to wear wrestling shirts to school. I mean, that was really the first time it wasn't ever quote unquote lame to be a wrestling fan in school. That's, you know, and that's another thing. And again, I guess I am being a little bit critical or not critical. It's just my observation is that to this day, you know, I look at merchandise across the boards. I'm not picking on anybody, but nobody's coming up with shit that you could wear to a bar and try to get laid. Everything has got a picture of a wrestler on it or a, 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 you know, a slogan or a catchphrase or, you know, some other graphic image that if you put that shirt on and you're at a wrestling event, cool. You're one of us. But if you're wearing that shirt and you go out at night, you're kind of a fucking geek. And when somebody comes up with, with merchandise that is cool enough that you could wear it to a wrestling event and away from a wrestling event, and you're cool no matter what, or the shirt is at least, you're making money. But, man, I, I just keep, you know, the obvious, oh, let's do a shirt with somebody's picture on it. Oh, fuck. Like, I'm going to wear a shirt with a picture of another guy on it. Huh. Especially a guy that looks better than me. What the fuck? No, I'm not doing that. Well, you could wear any shirt you want over at ericbischoff.com. We've got a shirt that says, yes, I am a model. It looks just like Rick, the model Martell. We've got the Sesame street death shirt. We've got eat sleep fire, honky tonk repeat. That's got, a good shirt. That is a good shirt. Uh, make wrestling unpredictable again. Eric's donkey show where the big boys play <laughs> straight out of catering. Uh, so many fun things on here. You've got to take a look at. Uh, maybe my favorite is, uh, Eric, Arn, Tony, Jr., Bruce, and Conrad. Uh, and then the old, you know, since we're talking about sting, we've got a big bag of sting to be the man. You must be tan lots of fun stuff on here, but perhaps the one that everybody is going to love the most right now, the, uh, often requested, I hate Conrad Thompson shirt. So if you're listening to this show, but think, man, this would be better if, uh, Conrad Thompson was not on this show. Well, that'd be easy. Go pick up a shirt. I hate Conrad Thompson at ericbischoff.com. Well, better yet, go back and listen to some of my earlier podcasts before Conrad and I hooked up and you'll feel much differently. <laughs> Let's keep it going. Uh, the October 27th Nitro, a match between Hogan and DDP ends prematurely. There's a big brawl with DDP getting beat up just for old time's sake. Sting comes out of the crowd, cleans house again. And a week later on the November 3rd Nitro, we see the contract signing between sting and Hogan, and this is only shown for a few minutes. Um, interesting concept here, this contract signing where we've also got, I think we, we use this contract signing as a way to introduce a TNT movie. And then we would cut back 
all in all, this is probably not good for WCW, but you're trying to be a good partner, right? Well, you gotta be, you know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta service your client. <laughs> That's what we were doing. The November 10th nitro. This is the night after the Montreal screw job. Of course, we know what happened there. Uh, you and Hulk are in the ring and you're challenging sting to come down. He repels from the ceiling, walks to the ring. When he gets to the ring, he takes his gloves off and he gets in Hulk's face. The NWO runs to the ring. Sting turns his back on Hulk to face them. Hulk hits him from behind and the NWO beats up sting. Hulk's hitting sting with uh, a bunch of leg drops. And this is the first time that we've seen sting, not just take a punch, but actually get beat up. And it hasn't happened until this point, I guess now that we're sort of on our march to our main event, we've got to let the heels quote unquote, get some heat on him. Right. Yeah. And the plan at this point, you know, that you're discussing was for sting to go over. So getting heat on sting wasn't a risk at that point. You know, and if we're supposed to just suspend disbelief for a minute, it is worth asking. He saved DDP's ass 843 times so far in 1997, but DDP doesn't come down to save him. Lex Luger doesn't come down to save him. The giant doesn't come down to save him. And I guess in storyline, this should make Sting angry at WCW for not reciprocating the help. Yeah, that was a flaw. Definitely a flaw. Uh, Because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, as you pointed out, you know, if if this would have been by design, if it would have been an error of design as opposed to an error of omission, um, yeah, they all should have come down. And NWO should have cleaned up on all of them. But they didn't. And that, that, was, a, that was a bad choice. Now, in truth, you know, they were all in catering. They were all busy eating fucking, you know, grilled turkey and, and cause you know, it was start, it was a holiday season and there's a lot of great dressing backstage and the cranberry sauce was fucking oh. phenomenal. I love good cranberry sauce, yeah. by the way, but the dressing and the turkey and the, the pumpkin pie, there was so much good catering back there that they just, uh, they didn't make it to the ring on time. And let me tell you, Eric Bischoff knows catering. I uh, fucking know catering. So let's get to, uh, the next time we see sting it's the December 8th nitro. Uh, it's been a few weeks since the beatdown happened. Uh, the lights are going out and when they come back on savage is out cold in the ring and there's a sting mask on his face. And during this nitro, we see the sting dummy come down from the rafters and go through the ring. I know, right? The NWO guys pick it up and put it on the ropes. But when Hogan goes to take the mask off, it's the real sting. And then sting beats up the NWO. By the way, this happened on December 8th, 1997. What a moment this is to see this sting dummy. Just go all the way through the ring, a nice little stunt, well put together. And then the old switcheroo with the real sting. Good stuff. It was amazing. God, I can't wait when this show's over. I'm gonna go back and watch all this stuff. Cause I think it was some of the best professional wrestling we've ever seen over an extended period of time. I really do in 97, the stuff that you're describing, you know, point to anything, you know, that's lasted more than a month that was remotely as good as this. Just, I don't think it's happened on the December 15th nitro sting plays more mind games going around the arena. When the lights are going out, the show goes off the air as sting walks to the ring for Hogan. Uh, a week later, December 22nd, this is the go home nitro for Starcade. 
you're in the ring doing a promo with Hulk Hogan. A guy comes in the ring and hands Hulk a present. Hulk opens it and it's, Oh, this is awesome. I remember this. This is awesome. It's a fake head of himself. Hulk. And it looks just like him. Yes, it does. Hulk is freaking out, yelling and screaming, jumping up and down. Sting appears at the top of the entrance, zip lines into the ring. As the show goes off the air, the fake head was made by Andre Freitas at AFX studios in the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia. I think he still has it quite a remarkable little, uh, piece of, of artistry because it is a really, really good replica. I think he even did like a, a plaster cast. I mean, it's high quality movie level shit and a nice little go home piece. When do you think you guys started working on this? And, and I, just to catch everybody up, there was a big celebration where you had been giving gifts to Hulk the entire episode. So it didn't feel weird that he got another one, but you're sort of denying No, no, that's not for me. No, I didn't do that one. I don't know what this is. Didn't I, didn't I give Hulk a Harley? Yes. And Ellis accidentally drove your Harley to the ring and you could tell that was not. No, no, here's a little backstory of that. I actually bought that Harley. I mean, it, it wasn't a stunt gift. It wasn't a show prop. I actually, I had a, um, I had a chopper built by a guy, by the guy, uh, a guy by the name of Vinnie Bergman, uh, in long beach, California. He was one of the original chopper builders before Jesse James and everybody else got aboard and choppers became kind of a thing. And Vinnie Bergman built a chop. It was a prototype called the ground pounder. And I really, really, I went to his shop one day and he showed me, he said, ah, look at this. This is a prototype, you know, not, it's not for sale or anything, but it's a prototype. I'm f- trying to figure it all out. And I said, no, I got to have that prototype. He was running. So I got to have that. So he sold me the prototype, but I actually, I loved it. It was fast as fuck. Hard to hold on to, though, because it was all raked out. And, you know, I, I got, I'm reaching out my arms are fully extended. It had drag bars on it. No, it had ape hangers on it at the time when I first bought it. And I, my arms are fully stretched. I literally would have, like, the tips of my fingers and maybe a little bit of the second knuckle, you know, onto the, the throttle and the brake handle. <clears throat> and I'd, I'd hit that thing and had like a 88 inch cubic inch. No, it was a 96 cubic inch S and S motor on it, which is really fast. But on a chopper, there's no weight. It's just a frame and wheels. Yeah. And I'd hit that thing. And I remember they delivered to, I was seeing at the Ritz Carlton in Marina del Rey, California, when Vinny and his team delivered the bike to me. And I couldn't wait to get it out. So I don't know if you've been to the Marina del Rey, yeah. Ritz Carlton there, but it's got that little circular parky lot, and a nice road out in front of it. Well, I got on that bike and didn't really get a feel for it. I've been on motorcycles all my life. Got out on the main street there that the Ritz Carlton was on, and I, like an asshole, decided I was going to give it a little bit, a little bit of gas. I'd never been on a bike that fast in my life. It threw me backwards. The torque of that bike threw me backwards so much that I grabbed a hold of the throttle to try to hold on. But because I was falling backwards or, you know, being pulled backwards, I actually, you know, laid more gas on it. I damn near lost that motherfucker. But I, I figured it out after a while how to ride it. But it was such a cool bike. And Hulk had actually bought me a Harley in for Christmas in '95. Um, didn't expect it, had no idea it was coming. You know, I wasn't making a ton of money at the time. You know, I was, I don't know where I was in the pay scale, probably a couple hundred grand, which is a lot of money. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it's not like I had money to burn. <clears throat> Buying a Harley with two young kids wasn't on my list of things to do. 
nor Mrs. B's. So I was at home one day and got a phone call and said, hey, there's something waiting for you down at this Harley shop. I thought, oh, that'd be cool. Maybe somebody bought me a jacket or something for Christmas. I go down there, and it's a 1995, uh, it was called a Bad Boy, was the model. It was a Springer. And I went, wow, that is fucking awesome. So when I finally started making more money, I decided to return the favor. So that bike that I gave him was identical to, to mine. Um, and I think that motorcycle is in Hogan's Beach Shop in Orlando. Yeah, we saw it there a couple years ago. Yeah. 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 So that was a, that was a legit Christmas gift, by the way. Talk to me about the, uh, the head coming out of the box and uh, doing a little movie magic here well you pointed it out i mean that was andre andre fritas was an extremely creative guy a little on the dark side a little spooky but super nice guy and amazingly talented and i do believe that was his idea not mine not hawks it was like hey what if we did this because he was you know smart guy he was watching all the stunts we were doing and the variations of those stunts and ways to keep things fresh and keep the audience off balance and still stay within the context of the story. And I think that was his idea. And it took about, I think it took about six weeks to pull that off. Really remarkable stuff. Again, if you want to see the head in the box, what's in the box, sort of seven style, it's December 22nd, 1997. And of course, six days later, the biggest pay-per-view in WCW history, Starcade 97, Easily the most anticipated match in WCW history. You thought Flair and Hogan was a big deal. Man, you took your time telling this story. Sting Hogan for the world title. The biggest. We did a whole episode on it. Uh, we don't need to get into the uh, the ins and outs of that one. Check it out in the archives. Uh, we've already beat this up and debated it so much that I don't think we need to do it again. But um, Thank God. Thank God. Oh, you just made my day. <laughs> During 97, oh. Sting becomes the number two merch seller in the business without even wrestling one match. So to be clear, the NWO in 1997 selling more than everybody. I know people like to think that the Austin 316 shirt was huge in 97 and it was, but it would really take, uh, to another level. Stone Cold shirt sales would in 98 and 97 Sting is number two and he doesn't have any matches until the end of December. Who was number one? The NWO. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. So the so NWO, NWO was number, was number one, one. In, in the entire industry. Yeah. Across the board. Yeah. So NWO is number one. Sting is number two. I didn't even know that until you told me that. That's really interesting. Pretty remarkable. Um, Meltzer would write uh, about the match that we've decided we're not going to talk about. It would turn a great phrase to say that 16 months of work was exposed about halfway through Sting's walk down the aisle and before he ever got in the ring. The mythical superhero turned human right before the fans very eyes. It wasn't as if it was a bad wrestling match that did it. Although the match itself was bad, but you could see the initial pop after all the hype and special effects didn't even last until sting made it to the ring. The match itself was a struggle. The finish was totally botched up. Sting did leave as champion, but after WCW's most successful quarter in history, the record breaking show raised more questions about the future than answers than the record revenue will provide. So let's talk about it. You know, do you think, and it's a, it's a minor thing. Do you think that perhaps the spectacle of Sting's entrance and the way the match starts and he makes his way to the ring and just the overall presentation could have been, or should have been handled a little differently. 
I think it could have been, and in hindsight, absolutely should have been. You know, and you know, I'll take responsibility for that. My my bad, my fault. Um, not, there's nothing I can say to defend or justify it. It was one of the things, not the most important thing, but a very important thing because the you know it's the first act in the match, right? It's the first. It's the beginning. Well, it's you also know? the thing that got fans so fired up. They're used to seeing him in the ceiling and rappelling down, and it's such a cool thing. I think there was an expectation that he would do it, and when he just walks out from the back, it feels a little like he's just like everybody else. Yeah. Yep. Some of the no, mystique I, is gone. I, 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 I'll take that criticism and uh, and have to live with it. It's true. Let's uh, at least read what Meltzer wrote about the match. Sting won the WCW title for the fourth time, beating a Hulk Hogan in 12 minutes and 54 seconds. Sting in a sleeveless outfit looked really small compared to the past. Hogan looked lighter than usual as well. Not much of a match. Sting threw a few drop kicks, but mainly Hogan dominated. Hogan's selling was pathetic. Sting did a no-sell spot on a suplex and then pointed to his crotch a la DX for the NWO. So much for product differentiation. Hogan then tried to use Sting's bat on him, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward, you know the end of the finish. But I just thought it was interesting that since you and I beat it up, so thoroughly before, um, that when Meltzer writes up the match, the first thing he mentions is how sting doesn't look himself. No. And you know, it's, it's become kind of a, not even an inside joke anymore, you know, to, to be the man, you gotta be tan. I mean, fuck, we sell t-shirts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I know people, you know, hung on to that and, and I still get Twitter feed you know, commentary about that, but, and I'm not going to get into Sting's personal life. That'll be up to Steve Borden someday. Um, it's not my position. Love the guy too much, respect him too much. Not going to go there, but it is fair to say that. Yeah. When, when Steve showed up in my opinion, as well as Hulk's not prepared. Yeah. The tan was one aspect of it. But as Dave pointed out visibly to the audience, he was not, he was not the same guy and there was a reason for it and it was a human reason and I understand it and I'll, and I'm not trying to deflect criticism. I'm not trying to justify, I don't, I don't give a fuck what people think anymore about it. I really don't. It is what it is. I can't change it. And it, but to really understand it, those listeners who really want to feel like they're getting a little bit more than just a topical explanations of uh, explanation of things. Steve Borden, the human being, was not prepared mentally or physically, as Dave Meltzer pointed out, or emotionally. He was not prepared, and we had to make a change. We, we had to adjust on the fly. We had to think about, okay, all this great story, all this great planning. And I don't mean to I'm not try to make anybody feel bad. It is what it is. It was what it was. And we've all lived through it and prospered. So it's good. But in that moment, it was not the same Steve Borden or sting in the eyes of the audience that we thought we had. And the rest is history. About that match, Sting once said in an interview, 
quote, very, very hard thing to live up to. You know, they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And yeah, it was very, very difficult. I was out of the ring for 12 months and Hogan's knees were really bad at the time. See, it was a little difficult and probably didn't live up to the hype. And what's sort of weird and stood out to me really in a big way uh, at the time is after the match, which Meltzer gave a quarter star to stinks. First words into the camera are in Spanish. He says something mamacita weird. You just go back to my previous comments. Man. Yeah. There's been rumors, you know, and we've touched on this before, but I want to just follow up. There's been a lot of rumors because of the way the finish happened. We're a month removed or maybe six or seven weeks removed from the Montreal screw job. Bret Hart's going to stop in and say, oh, I'm not letting this happen again. So we're tr- trying to st- tell a similar story uh, to the quote unquote smart fans about what's happened on the other station. Earl Hebner was a big piece of that. There's been rumors that you guys tried to sign Earl Hebner away from the company in order to be a part of this match which I guess would have made sense. Um, do you remember that being even a, a discussion? Could have been, you know, it could have come up in a, in a booking meeting. I, when you say, you know, we tried to sign them, I don't think that's true, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't some discussion about it. Yeah. There was at least an idea. Um, let's talk about the next night. Um, they do a rematch. The show goes off the air while the match is still going on. It's an old trick from the eighties, I guess, to get fans to watch, uh, the next week, but I don't know. It, it does feel like as great of a 1997 as it was, the finish is a bit of a letdown perhaps due to, you know, maybe we're not paying great attention to the details. Like maybe Sting should have came down from the ceiling. Maybe we overbooked ourselves with the finish with Bret Hart and fast count and all the other stuff. But you've also got, as you said, there's an underlying, you know, he's just not himself right now. If you had to go back, is there much you could or would change about the way 97 finished, you know, here in late December was thing? Well, sure. <laughs> sure. Um, that's the, the luxury of Hindsight. either being an arm, armchair quarterback, which most people are, or almost everyone is, um, or 2020 hindsight. Of course. Of course. Had I known then what I know now? Of course. How many times have we all said that to ourselves? Sure. Fuck, had, had I known that the winning lottery, t- the Powerball ticket was going to be sold in New Jersey last August 14th I, I, at a 7-Eleven store, I, I would have been first in fucking line for it. <laughs> but you don't know what you don't know, you know? And, and, and some of it was, I mean, there were a lot of things. You know, it was... No, I mean, let's kind of look at a couple things that were going on at this point. We self-inflicted some damage, right? Momentum, botched finish, bad match, not setting it up properly, as you and Meltzer pointed out, um, or as Meltzer pointed out, you reiterated. Um, there were some things that we could have done there. But, you know, guess what? The match would have still been the match. The guy wasn't in it. Yes, I use you know the fact that he didn't have a tan as a, an example, one small example, because I wasn't, nor will I now, go into great detail. But that was one example of just not being, you know, some of the basic things. You know, it, it's it's like showing up to fly a plane and for leaving your glasses at home. You know, there's some basic shit you got to kind of you know bring with you to work. Right. And yeah, that was part of it. Sting was right. In his recap of that match, Hogan was hurting. His knees were bad. We should have, in hindsight. 
what could I have done differently? What could Hulk have done differently? What could Sting have done? What could we all have done differently? In Hulk's case, you know, rather than trying to, you know, just power through and having the same type of match that he had had in the past or could see in his head, which is probably more the case, um, his body wasn't listening to his brain. It couldn't. It's not that he didn't want to. It's just that his body wouldn't do what his brain was telling him to do, and it was obvious to the audience. And it was because of injuries, not lack of effort or caring or wanting to put forth the effort. It was what it was. But could we have laid out a match that took those things into consideration as opposed to trying to work around them unsuccessfully? Absolutely. Would that have made a difference? Maybe. Had Sting been in the right frame of mind and prepared? Maybe. The other thing that, you know, everybody has to keep in mind is by this time, WWE's pouring on the gas. Oh, yeah. All right. 97, they were flogging themselves with wet, roll, wet rolls of, you know, tissue paper. They were beating the fuck. They couldn't, they couldn't hit their ass with both hands and a compass in 1997, 96. By late 1997, I think it was late 1997, Vince McMahon did his famous, we're going to reinvent, you know, creative, and we're going to listen to the family. He knew he was getting his ass stomped, and he had to change his, you know, tried and true formula of, you know, character-driven kind of animated cartoonish storytelling. And he started to adopt what we were doing with the NWL, which later became the Attitude Era. And they did it in a powerful way. And by 1998, you know, end of 97, early 98, it wasn't just that we were making missteps. It was that WWE was making big, correct steps and repositioning their product in the way they presented it to their audience. So it was kind of a double whammy of self-inflicted you know, damage as well as pressure being put on us and the audience being taken away by some of the crazy, over-the-top, attitude-era stuff that was going on in WWE. So it was a double whammy to a degree. We uh, took to Twitter and asked if you guys had any questions for Eric. And if you'd like to ask a question about next week's show, follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks. That's at 83 weeks. And, uh, you could ask a question. So we're going to hit a few of these reader questions, listener questions, and we'll try to do them rapid fire. Eric, are you ready? I'm ready. Cody Lee writes in, what was he whispering to wrestlers before giving them the scorpion death drop? Of course. He's probably trying to make them laugh in real life, but was there supposed to be a storyline piece behind him occasionally whispering at the guy before he hits him with the death drop? Not a storyline piece. I think it was just something that, again, improv, you know, good part of everything that you saw back then was some very, very talented people, you know, improving because they thought it would enhance the moment and the character. Uh, Barry McFeely writes after the quite literally insane deafening pop sting got taking out all the NWO at the end of March's uncensored pay-per-view. Did you question holding until Starcade, or is that what made you hold until Starcade? Uh, the, the answer is neither. Um, had no doubt holding to Starcade was a good idea. Uh, nor was it the impetus behind it. And we were kind of already committed. Let me ask you've, you've said before, I've always thought, Hey, Starcade is, is WCW's hallmark event. And you and even Tony Schiavone have both said, well, really it was probably Halloween havoc. Was there ever consideration to maybe move it up and have him do it at Halloween havoc in Las Vegas? 
No, and the reason why it's such a oh, I don't even know the word for it. it. It was an instinct, you know. Sting was about as much of an icon, a WCW icon, as Flair. Not quite as much. Flair was the guy, but right below Flair was Sting. And because Starcade was historically, at least, one of our biggest pay-per-views or one of our our, our, our longest running tent poles, maybe traditional tent poles, and because Sting was traditionally a WCW guy, that was the reason why I picked Starcade. It just seemed to fit better than Halloween Havoc. Ha- Halloween Havoc didn't need it. Halloween Havoc was already doing really, really well <clears throat> as a tent pole. Uh, it, it kind of had its own character, so to speak. Uh, Starcade, not so much. So I think the, the idea was to hold it off to Starcade because of that. Because of the history and the lineage and Sting's relationship with WCW, and also because Starcade needed something that Halloween Havoc didn't. Sean Wolford writes in, did you ever consider having Sting work major market house show matches against members of the NWO to build towards Starcade? Nope. And in nope. hindsight, major market house shows. Do you think that would have been a good idea or nope? Okay. Nope. Number one, we didn't need it. We were printing money. Sure. You were selling out either way, I guess is your point. Yeah. We were printing money. We were selling out without him. Um, when I talked earlier in this episode about discipline and building mystique, that's a part of it. You've, you've got to be able to abandon the formula to a certain degree. In this case, we had to abandon the formula that we would normally use partly, and we could afford it because we didn't need it. But if you're going to commit, commit, don't kind of commit, don't compromise. And that's one of the reasons the angle worked and the story worked and the character worked because we didn't compromise it for short-term gain. It certainly wouldn't have done nothing, anything to satisfy people all over the country in major markets by, by giving them something in, you know, in a live house show and then basically giving them something similar on a pay-per-view that you were building towards. So I, I think to manage the mystique and to maintain the mystique, the decision was a good one. I think the question was more to help sting, maybe work off some ring rust. Well, I mean, that's a very good question and I'm sorry I, I interpreted it incorrectly. No, that in hindsight, could that have been a good idea? It would have compromised the character. So in a sense, I probably wouldn't have done it anyway. Would it have worked off the ring rust? Sure. But Steve's problem wasn't ring rust. Right. I got you. All right. That's, it wasn't the issue. We'll move along. Will Coxon writes in hindsight to the fact that the WCW locker room came to the ring when Steve beat Hogan. And the fact that Sting jumps into the waiting arms of the giant kind of ruined his character. He sort of loses that you can stick it attitude with me when he does that. Let's say you. I agree. Spontaneous moment that worked against us. Can't, and I'm not critical. I'm not critical. You know, an argument could be made, I guess, creatively. I'm not buying it, but it could be made that it's time for that crow scary sting character to hang it up and become the aversion of his previous character. Cause he finally put a stake through the heart of the, 
you know, the vampire, meaning the NWO. He finally did what he accomplished after all those, after all that time and all those challenges and all the obstacles thrown in his way, all of the things that put him at risk. The stakes were high. He finally, he won. He achieved his goal. So arguably, I guess, someone could make the case that it makes a little bit of sense. 2020 hindsight, I would have preferred not. Just so our listeners understand what Sting's contract, we talked earlier about how he was the number two merchandise seller. What Sting's contract allowed him to participate in that, or was that all inclusive of his guarantee? Oh, God, this is horrible, but I don't really remember. I just, I hate making shit up. And sure. I hate no problem. swerving the audience, but I, I think I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to take a, a whack at it, but think there were percentages involved, but much, much lower than WWE. I think there was participation, but a much lower participation as a result of the guaranteed contracts. Let's talk about bats. Kevin Albus wants to know, were there always prop bats or gimmick bats, or sometimes did you use real bats? Sometimes we use real bats. In fact, we didn't start using prop bats until, you know, some of our shows started turning into bat fests. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then, and then you had to, or you're going to be killing people. See, jerk J wants to know, did you have sting work out at the power plant to prepare for his main event with Hulk Hogan? No. All right. And, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Sure. Um, no, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, debate and I don't know that it could really be argued. I think most people think about all the great moments in stings career and they would maybe point to different matches. But Stink's best year is probably 1997, and he had one fucking match or two. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Amazing. Remarkable. Just shows you what can be done if you have a great imagination. And you're committed and disciplined. And you get lucky. <laughs> and all the things that go into success. It's not one thing. It's really not. I wish it was because it would be so much easier and there'd be so much, so much more success. Um, but. You know, some it, it's a great idea. It's it's original ideas. It's planning. It's execution. It's timing. So much of it is timing, which I refer to as luck. But you know, you've talked a lot timing. on the show about how how uh, Kevin Sullivan booked Heat. Uh, what, what role did he play in the West Sting was booked in '97. I mean, he was certainly part of it. You know, but. I mean, hard to, hard to kind of quantify it. Sure. I'll qualify it by saying, yes, he was definitely a part of the process, but was he 75% of it? 20% of it? 10% of it? Guess what? Any, Any given week it could change. You know, we were all on that boat. Everybody, the talented, you know, Sting and Hulk and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and, any a number of talents, you know, Savage, Page, everybody was involved, and any one of them could have come up with an idea that trumped everybody else's. And in that particular week, that's what we that went with. Could have been he could have been eighty percent of all the creative in that particular week, and the next week he didn't even show up. So it depends. I would say across the board, Kevin didn't have a lot to do with the NWO angle as far as the conceit of it. The idea of it, the original premise of it. Um, 
in fact, not, nothing to do with it at all. Um, but what Kevin did do, and and I think if it was up to Kevin Nash, when I talked to Kevin, I was in Qatar with Qatar, not Cutter, Mucker Feathers, Qatar, um, with Kevin. And we, you know, we talked for a couple hours and we talked about Kevin Sullivan a lot. And Kevin is a big fan. Kevin Nash is a big fan of Kevin Sullivan's and felt that had it not been, cause you know, we had a chance to spend hours kind of looking back and Nash felt, um, that had it not been for Kevin Sullivan and his ability to manage the talent. And by manage the talent, I mean, giving them, you know, emotional and psychological aspirins to get through the fact that the entire formula was being turned upside down and on its head and that the baby faces weren't getting comebacks. And at least in the very beginning and the, the crucial, you know, evolution of the NWO story, it took a lot of convincing and counseling and handholding and babysitting and cocktails and all kinds of other things to get talent through the fact that the formula that they've been using throughout their entire careers at that point was now being thrown out the window and anarchy rules and convincing them that eventually the baby faces will make their comeback. Not next week, not next month, maybe next year. And that was a that was a tough pill to get a lot of talent to swallow because they were completely, they were on um, on firm ground, you know there was no terra firma anywhere near them. They were walking in quicksand every single week when they showed up because the formula, their experience, all the things that they learned was, in many respects, being tossed out the window, and they were being asked to learn a new psychology. Valentine Michaels writes in: Did WCW ever get a cease and desist from Miramax for Sting's makeup being an exact copy of the Crow makeup? We probably would today. Sure. Fast forward if it was, you know, the NWO and every aspect of it was, uh, you know, being revealed today. You, you'd probably get <clears throat> a couple dozen lawsuits from a bunch of different people. But fortunately, it was 1997 and we didn't have that issue. It's, uh, it's so weird to think how much of this is just great timing, too, because really, if you think about it, given what we know, the tragedy is going to be with Owen Hart. You know, had that happened before this crow character, he never would have been in the rafters to begin with. Um, I doubt that you, you think maybe you still would have, we did. We, 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 we dropped staying out of the rafters after Owen Hart. I just don't think it would have been as often as I guess my point. It was a staple there for a while where it felt like every single week afterwards. You know what? You know what? I think though, Conrad, we, we wouldn't have not done it, but I don't think the audience would have been as excited about it. Yeah. I don't mean that, that is, I don't mean that the fair. risk changed. I just mean, you know, from a from a, I don't know, sensibility standpoint, maybe it's not the right thing. I don't. Uh, we weren't there, and I don't. I certainly don't mean any disrespect to to Owen Hart's family or or, or any Hart for that matter. Um, but when somebody gets killed on a NASCAR track, when Dale Earnhardt Senior got killed on a NASCAR track. Yes, they made modifications. Helmets changed. There was an analysis done, but people didn't stop driving. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we did the same. We certainly, you know, double-checked and, you know, reevaluated what we were doing for safety issues as a result, much like NASCAR did, but we didn't stop doing it. But I do think your point, had timing been different, and it's hard for me even to 
talk about this, but if the Owen Hart situation would have happened early in 97, even though we may have continued doing it, I think the audience would have reacted adversely to it. Yeah. At the very least, it wouldn't have been something that they would they got nearly as excited about as they did. There's lots of questions about you know staying that day, and I, I know we've sort of tiptoed around some stuff, so uh, we'll try to answer this however we can. But Brian Darby writes: Considering Sting did not repel from the ceiling, nor did he go over cleanly, I've heard there were outside of the ring issues. I have to ask: In your opinion, did Sting arrive to Starcade intoxicated? No. Yeah, I've never heard that. That's not it. That was that not out. it. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with it. And if I've ever said anything to imply it, I want to make it clear right now. Um, I didn't mean that. That was not the issue. It was a personal issue, yeah. not related to drugs or alcohol. Marcus Steele Wright writes in, on the November 10th, 1997 episode of Nitro, why did Eric let Hulk Hogan show Sting without his face paint on on the set of a movie while he was in the ring? Later on in the night, does Eric think the NWO beatdown of Sting was a mistake? Maybe he'd do it a different way today. Hmm. I'm going to pass on that one because I don't remember it. Well, what I do remember is that we've got uh, a lot of new stuff on our brand new super Patreon. It's adfreeshows.com. You could have listened to this show early and ad free. If you were a supporter over on the new super Patreon and uh, right now there is a brand new bonus episode up of maybe one of our most requested topics. It's the story of Eric Bischoff's 83 days in the WWE. Of course, it wasn't exactly 83 days, but that became the joke. We even sort of tongue in cheek referenced catering a few times here, Eric, we taped this episode earlier in the week. Now fans can, can hear your side of the story at adfreeshows.com. Uh, do you regret doing it? Or are you glad you finally got some of that off your chest? No, I don't regret doing it at all. You know, I had to be, um, be a little careful how I did it, but happy to do it. And I'm, I'm, you know, despite how things turned out and we'll talk about it more on Patreon, obviously, but, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would. So there you go. Tune in for more details. Absolutely. Adfreeshows.com. You get your shows early. You get them ad free. You get all the notes and research we do with the show and some bonus content. Check it out. Pretty affordable. Adfreeshows.com starts at just nine bucks a month. You don't just get this show. You get all five of my shows here on Westwood one. So you'll get Eric and Arn and Tony and Jr. and Bruce, the whole gang. Go check it out today. Adfreeshows.com. Don't forget to take a look at some of those shirts. Uh, you can check out Eric's new favorite shirt. Yes, I am a model. Uh, that's available at ericbischoff.com. And we appreciate all the sponsor support this week on the show. And if you'd like to advertise on the show, email our main man, Dave Green. Uh, hey, hey, advertising uh, at gmail.com or just look into it a little more at advertisewithconrad.com. Until next week, we'll see you right here each and every week on Westwood One. It's Eric Bischoff. It's 83 weeks on Westwood One. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.